Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. For this week's episode, my guests and I are tackling more film adaptations of beloved horror video games, this time taking a look at Paul W.S. Anderson's Resident Evil and Johannes Roberts' Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. We'll chat about the precedent set by Anderson's films and how that precedent shaped Resi adaptations over the years and how Robert's recent adaptation sidestepped that convention with Welcome to Raccoon City. And joining me once again to chat adaptations, survival horror, and the dead that won't stay dead is returning friend of the show and staff writer for The Pit, Michael Pemintel. Michael, welcome back to the show, man. Jay, it's always a pleasure. You know, I love these conversations and today's conversation in particular is something I've been very itching to get to you with. I was going to say, man, we, we had a, a lot of restraint on our part for making it this far into these chats without immediately, you know, jumping right into Resident Evil, right? Because that's kind of like the obvious first. The, but I yeah. think that we've uh, we've done this enough now that we can dive into these. No, yeah, I um, I kind of thought, you know, it's like, it, it, yeah, not to repeat what you just said, but like, yeah, I think Anderson's Resident Evil is like the definitive. It's not the beginning of obviously an, uh, video game adaptations. Um, but I think in terms of them becoming much more popular and being churned out, I think definitely is the one that most people might commonly reflect back to. Absolutely. You know, in my group of friends who it's kind of like 50, 50, they're movie game nerds like me. And then the other half are just like sports fans and they just indulge me with some of my, (laughs) some of my interests once in a while. And even those friends that are not as in the weeds with this nerd stuff as we are, have seen Resident Evil and, you know, maybe they don't all love it, but at some point, you know, they were like, oh, this is cool and different and weird. And the fact that this is what a video game movie can look like outside of whatever, you know, adolescent experience they had with like Mortal Kombat or the Super Mario movie or something like that, where they viewed that as kind of just being like cheesy cash-ins is how they would describe those types of movies. Whereas something like Resident Evil, it had a certain level of like visual flair to it, or perhaps... There was like a darker tone to it, even though, you know, we'll talk about darker tones and Resi adaptations later on. But, you know, it was a a standout for them, I think, in the types of movies that they were watching or that more accurately that I was forcing them to watch at that time. I mean, video games are already, well, this is going going back to the 90s. Video games were quite niche already. And I think Resident Evil is much, was much more of a niche approach to an adaptation. You know, Mario, you could argue that just has a big enough name. It's Super Mario. And then Mortal Kombat, I think it's kind of, it was like almost the, God, please don't hate me for what I'm about to say, but it's like almost the Call of Duty of back in the day, 90s, (laughs) multiplayer game, just the arcade multiplayer game and that communal kind of activity. So there's the name recognition there, but like Resident Evil, that's just so much you have to present an audience, not just not just in terms of the variety of monsters, but the variety of characters and the fucking lore. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll get into the qual the how we feel about the individual qualities of this movie of these movies shortly. 
Absolutely. But, you know, let's begin um, with the source material, right? Talking about this, probably the most beloved survival horror franchise of all time. Um, what was your exposure to Resident Evil? You know, what was your introduction to the franchise and what does the franchise mean to you as a horror fan? So funny enough, that introduction does come in the form of Anderson's 2002 Resident Evil. Um, prior to that, it was one of those things where it's like I had always seen Resident Evil box art in you know eb games game stops whatever have you and it was one of those things that i always clamored for in particular i have a very i i do have a very visual memory of trying and begging my mother to get me re3 in the our video rental store that that shit did not happen at the time unfortunately <laughs> um but you know by the time t- uh the 2002 movie came out i was you know off my own being you know well, I would have been 12 at that time, but I was off at my on my own sneaking into movie theaters and whatever have you. And um, that that was the itch that I used to get me into the fandom and just to learn about the story that I had just passively had an interest in or admired from a distance. Excuse me, not passively had an interest. Um, and I the movie, I loved it. I absolutely freaking loved it. And I devoured it. And that only created more of an itch. Um, by the time I actually got to play a Resident Evil, though, was four. And th- I mean, I, I feel like it's I know I'm there's so many people who already champion that game, but I have to just say on my own, like it's easily a top three video game experience for me. I adore Resident Evil four. And that was just like, OK, you know what? I've waited long enough. I'm not waiting any fucking longer. And I dove into everything else. Um I remember the next thing I picked up because obviously four came out on GameCube first, um, but I actually got zero. So I, I played zero, and then I played one, um, and then two and three, and then I, I I mean I've just been on that journey ever since. And it's one of those things that like I always freak out with excitement whenever there is a new Resident Evil for me. It doesn't, you know, for any of those who have heard our Silent Hill episode. I will be honest to say that Resident Evil does not carry that kind of emotional depth to me. Um, you know, it's but when we talk in terms of fucking fun, hashtag yeah. fucking fun, <laughs> Resident Evil is right at the fucking top for me. I I just, you know, you know, the way whatever people feel when they go see a Marvel movie in theaters. Um, that's what Resident Evil does for me with a new game. Like, I can't tell you how much I need it to be March so I can play the 4 remake. Um, I, I need that right now. It's been too long. And um, so for me, it's very sentimental because... And this is something we'll get into with the movies because I think they they utilize this vibe in a very particular way. But it's uh, it's all the horror flavor I love with... The, with a very profound sense of 90s cheese that feels nostalgic to me. And I think that's something that the games have held on to very well. Like, these are games that deal with real heavy, serious shit. But it's also, like, you, you gotta, you gotta like, let loose some suspension of belief here because it also gets goofy as shit. And um, so for, you know, to end the rant, it's it's something that I hold very near and dear to my heart. And I'm very thankful for that 2002 Resident Evil because that turned what was a distant itch into just not even the sea being planted. I was in. 
I was in it. I just wanted more. Yeah, no, I want to address your comments in the reverse. You know, what you just said a minute ago about, you know, Resident Evil dealing with a lot of heavy subject matter with the games, but it has this sort of B-movie delivery of everything. Mm. I find it to be a lot more of an accessible series than something like Silent Hill, right? Sure. I agree to what you said, right, about Silent Hill carrying a much more mature and I would say goes so far as to say like an adult handling of taboo subject matter, subject matter that was very taboo, especially back when something like Silent Hill 2 came out and then, you know, moving throughout the series. And yet I don't remember Silent Hill fondly from having being fun, big quotes around that, right? It's more about the experience of being cinematic and tackling that subject matter and the story and the fucked up ways in which you get to explore these characters' personalities and how the town itself is a reflection of them and whatnot. Whereas uh, Resident Evil, I can't tell you how many times I've played a number of the entries in the series, right? Because back in the day, I came to it late, but it was the thing where I was able to pick up the first three games in the series from EB Games when they were like mm-hmm. in bargain bins. It was like 10 bucks or something, and I still have them. Yeah. And so I started with for whatever reason, started with two, probably because I'd seen the poster hanging up uh, in the EB games like you had, or I'd seen it in Wizard Magazine or something. So I played two and then I dove right into three right after that and then went back to one. Mm. And by the time I'd gotten through those and whatnot, I had finally saved up enough money to get a GameCube. And then I got, you know, Resident Evil 4, which like you, that hit at a time for me where it took my love of horror, which was like blossoming at that point, but then it gave it to more of an action forward sensibility, which was part of what I was into at the time. Right. I think I, while I enjoyed the original Resident Evil games, playing them is something that the older I got, the more I appreciated in the moment. Like it was a lot to get used to that kind of like the tank controls, the uh, hardcore survival horror elements and whatnot. But being infatuated with the world and the concepts that were in them. And of course the fucking monsters that are in them and how rad they are. Yeah. Um, and then to have resident evil Four land and to play like other games at the time that I was playing, you know, more action oriented focus and whatnot. Um, it just all hit at this really pivotal moment. And then of course, when I finally got around to the movies, it, you know, the original Anderson's 2002 film and then apocalypse, it was kind of just like an explosion of this newfound love of horror mm. in Resident Evil, but giving it more of this action sensibility that as a kid was definitely like my jam and probably annoyed the fuck out of my parents and friends because I wouldn't shut up about it. Um, but, you know, I'm curious because Anderson's adaptations of the films, right? And I would go so far as to say his first film is leaps and bounds tonally different than his later films, right? I think you can start to see where this series was going to be growing into, but going back and rewatching the first movie and watching a little bit of Apocalypse just to get a feel for it, um, you know, the original film feels very different in a lot of ways to the rest of those movies, you know, the six that came after it. How do you feel about, you know, just his approach with the adaptations of Resident Evil? How does that uh, land for you? Um, so on, on one hand, as I've, you know, shared during this series, I am never going to bust anyone or, you know, get like hold anyone into like a negative degree of like, oh, why aren't you like a hundred percent faithful? And it's not beat for beat the same thing. So I, I've never had an issue with that. 
Um, I have had my nitpicky moments though, where it's just like, I feel like this kind of character or this plot, or it's like this particular monster is thrown in here as set dressing and we don't get a lot of depth with that stuff. Um, so I, I've had my moments with that, but I've heard, at least in my experience, I've heard so much more negative criticism from people in regards to these movies. I don't know a lot of people in my personal life or even just on the internet who I've experienced anything positive mostly to say about these movies. And I think that while they individually have their issues in terms of maybe being quote unquote good movies um, and then some stand out more so than others. Um, I do think as I, I give them a lot of credit and I think they deserve a lot of credit for Anderson, just trying to swing outside the fence here and do something that for me, at least does feel very resi to me. These movies do feel super resi. Like, for as fucking weird and honestly, for as goofy as they can fucking be, like, there's some shit there. Like, there's some shit there where it's like, you know, they're touching upon, like, cheesy horror elements of Veronica. And, you know, like, and I love that. Like, I love how ridiculous the Alice storyline gets the more that these movies progress. Um and so I've never had an issue with like maybe him like deviate. Well, um, he does deviate a lot. And again, I do have particular nitpicks where it's just like, you know, you are taking like a classic character and you're kind of making them like too flat or you're taking like this monster that maybe has a little bit more depth to it and it feels too flat there. Um, but I, I've, I've really for the to sum it up, I've really been along for the ride. And I've really haven't had an issue with how much he deviates. That's that's what I want to say. I don't really I I admire his willingness to swing for the fences. That's what I was trying to articulate earlier to swing for the fences, even if those swings don't always hit. Yeah, I you know, I think that's largely fair and I'll be upfront. Most of the sequels are not for me, like they're not films that I've necessarily enjoyed um, and, you know, it's not exactly what I personally want from Resident Evil adaptations, but I will say running with the B-movie charm that has always been a part of Resident Evil, Anderson created that language and, you know, there's clearly an audience for it, right? I think that the series collectively has made like a billion dollars worldwide or something like that. So clearly there's an audience for these films. And I think that he very quickly was able to create this sort of like resi hybrid vernacular that works for people and there's an audience for it. it. For me personally, it doesn't really work, but I think that, you know, there's a testament to a filmmaker that is able to create an audience with something that has the DNA of what is familiar for most and then create something new out of it, but it still works on some level. Like you said, you can take certain elements or creatures or monsters and, you know, maybe they're a little flat or not as fleshed out, but he's, playing with them in a way that certain parts of a fandom would want to see them played with and, you know, exemplified and whatnot, which again, you know, who am I to say what is the right or wrong way to adapt something? It, it's found an audience and it clicks for some people. And uh, I think that's one of those things that we both agree. Uh, you can't really shame people for what they like and enjoy, right? Just because it doesn't line up with our thoughts. But I want to get into the original film because the original film was a huge 
deal when I finally got around to seeing it. Again, like I said, infatuated with horror, infatuated with Resident Evil, and then, of course, infatuated with the sort of over-the-top bonkers action uh, that is definitely in this film at times. But as a quick recap, uh, Resident Evil is written and directed by Paul W.S. Anderson with co-writer Alan B. McElroy. 2002's Resident Evil introduces us to Alice, played by Mila Jovovich, a woman who awakens with no memory of who she is or the mansion she resides within. Complicating matters, a team of commandos and a cop show up and inform her that a secret research facility known as the Hive is beneath the mansion and has suffered a mysterious mass casualty event. Though it quickly becomes apparent that the secrets of the Hive were best left buried as Alice and the team become trapped below and must contend with the hellish experiments of the Umbrella Corporation. So when Resident Evil was originally released back in the day, um, do you remember sort of like the buildup for the film? Do you remember seeing any trailers or were you even kind of like cognizant of it when it was coming out? And if so, like what were your expectations? Um, so the expectations were vaguely intense. Because again, I, 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 I had been kept out from playing these games, unfortunately. Um, my closest experience to Resident Evil at that point in time was just anything I could read in a magazine, any pictures I could see, um, or any cover art I could admire while in a video game store. And I mean, aesthetically, it just, it checked off every box for me. So um, so there was a vague excitement being like, oh, hey, this is the movie based off one of the biggest horror video game series ever. And it's like, it's zombies, it's mutants. I'm fucking in, I'm ready, I wanna see it. Um, as far as, like, I cannot, unfortunately, swear by the first, like, initial moment or reaction that I learned of its existence. I'm pretty sure it was a trailer. Or maybe it was, like, a news article in one of the magazines, like, EGM or Game Informer. Um, but, yeah, it was a vague excitement. And I, I just knew I was on board. And I knew going in, um, I was, I, I had the assumption that I was just going to eat up anything. I saw because I had nothing to compare it to. Yeah, I remember it must have been in a magazine, like you said, like an EGM or something or GamePro or whatever at the time. And it wasn't a film that I would see for a number of years after it was released. Mm -hmm. But again, it was one of those things where it was like every piece of information I could find, anytime I ever saw a trailer, like I probably caught the trailer at the beginning of some DVD that was like randomly picked up from the library or something. Just be, and I remember watching it, and then when my parents went to sleep, waking up or you know pretending to be asleep, and then running out in the living room and rewatching it over and over because I'm sure it had some banger new metal score playing over the trailer, and just like seeing a glimpse of a zombie or a dog or liquor or whatnot, and of course you know Mila Jovovich was like my first movie crush. I think back in the day, it was just like absolutely in love with her, um, and it was one of those things that I was infatuated with long before. The movie, not her, that I ended up, but in some ways, yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was the type of movie that I was obsessed with before I saw it. And I probably didn't see it for, I don't know, a year or something like that after it was released. But I just remember that being a very like adolescent experience of being obsessed with something that you wouldn't get to play or watch because, you know, parents wouldn't let you see it or not have the money to buy it or rent it or whatever. And, you know, Resident Evil was at the forefront of those types of adolescent experiences for me. Yeah, no, I, um, I, 
I can't, well, no, I can swear by what my first R-rated movie was that I got, I snuck into. I think, actually, I, I, I shit you not, I think Resident Evil, and God, my time, my timing might be screwed up here. I think Resident Evil was like my second snuck into R-rated experience. That's rad. Yeah, I, think, I think so, yeah, because uh, it might have been my first. Whenever Freddy versus Jason came out, that was my first. Yeah. I mean, those are two awesome like, <laughs> first yes. R-rated movies to sneak into. Yeah, something like that. Uh, so Freddy versus Jason was 2003. So I take that back. Resident Evil was my first, which is super surreal to me. Yeah, and then uh, that popped the R-rated cherry for me. And then... Uh, and then Freddy versus Jason. But anyway, I digress. Um, but yeah, I really want to talk about this movie. Obviously, I want to talk about like our first experiences seeing it. But for me, I've been really excited to talk about this movie in the context of seeing it and experiencing it after really becoming the movie with nothing really to compare it to at all and so like over the years as i've gotten to play like a couple more of the games in the series or a couple more of the spinoffs i've been able to look at the first resident evil and anderson's other resident evil movies through a different lens and in particular it's been a very long time since i've seen the o2 resident evil and so for this episode i rewatched it and, like, not that we're going to get too much into it in here, at least I don't think so, but, like, you know, for all intents and purposes, my favorite Resident Evil movie is Apocalypse, and I get a lot of shit from people for that one. I fucking love that movie, and I will die on that hill. Um, so, O2 is not really the one I come back to a lot. And so, for this episode, I did, and this is, like, this is after, like, years of not having seen it. And, like, I was pretty really blown away by like how fucking in it i was um for i mean here's the first talking point Let, let's talk about this jay like how well do you think this movie pulls off survival horror vibe in terms of atmosphere and watching the nav the characters navigate the hive you know I don't know if I think that it's a good example of survival horror. I think it is a good example of a director coming in and taking something like you mentioned early on, he taking a game that has multiple entries at this point with established lore, you know, the inner workings of Umbrella, all of the zombies, the mutagens, all these characters, their backstories, their connects, connections to one another. And he makes it very approachable, even if it is not a direct adaptation of, you know, one, two, or three, right? He really is, I think, this film is a masterful example of taking elements from something that is very well established and just making it very, very approachable to anyone. Like I said in the beginning, I mean, granted, it's an anecdote on my part, but, you know, over the years of showing this movie to people, I have friends that are able to get into this and enjoy this for what it is, even if they've never played the games, even if they don't play games. And for somebody like myself that at that time had played through the original trilogy of games, you know, a little confused at how, at why there were no characters that were like 
from the games. I was kind of a little confused at the notion of an adaptation that wasn't drawing directly from a plot point, but it was my first example of a director that was able to adapt the themes of those games and elements of that world and really nail the visual language of, you know, the Umbrella Laboratories, right? Not not so much Spencer Mansion, but overall, you know, he's able to take what occurs beneath the ground of those facilities and whatnot and really make it a sprawling mega complex that isn't in the games, but it draws visual inspiration from it. And, you know, it feels like it's a natural continuation of the world of Resident Evil in a way that I think is very successful. Um, And also, you know, of course, he's able to take some of the hits of Resi, right? Obviously, you have zombies, but then you've got the liquors, you've got the dogs. And at the same time, though, again, like within the span of, I think the film is less than an hour and 50 minutes. It's probably like 140 or something like that. But He's able to really touch upon the major predicaments of a majority of Resident Evil stories. Mm. You know, you're able to have people that are being manipulated by this mega corporation that's doing these nefarious testings. You've got the military that's behind them or the spec op squads and whatnot that are the pawns. You have people that are sort of operating in this gray area. They're not good. They're not bad. They're just looking to make a buck. And then you're also able to, you know, take the elements of horror that everybody loves and is expressing them in a way that is more attuned, I would say, to the director's own sensibilities, which doesn't always work for me again, like I said, in terms of, you know, where the series goes. But I can't not respect the fact that the director went with their gut and what there is probably one of their strengths of filmmaking, which is something that is a little more action oriented, that delivers kind of a hybrid interpretation of something. Uh, but at the uh, same time, it doesn't feel like a complete perversion of it, right? I never would say that the original Resident Evil doesn't feel like Resident Evil. I would say that it feels like it's this kind of hybrid interpretation of it, which I would be more in favor of than something that doesn't feel like anything like Resident Evil. And it's only Resident Evil because there's a liquor or there's an umbrella logo on a wall somewhere. That's the perfect way to put it. I, I almost wanted to be like an add to that and say remix, but I, I, I think that's just kind of maybe the wrong terminology to use. Uh, you know, Anderson, you know, if you look back on like, again, what I will always stand by as the greatest video game movie adaptation ever made is, you know, Mortal Kombat. I think Anderson doesn't get enough credit for being a good action director. You know, I think he, you know, he, the way he composes a scene and the way he works with his actors, you know, action's fantastic. Um, and, you know, when it comes to, when you mentioned the visual language part, I think something that I admired in this rewatch is that, and I, and I respect your point with it not feeling like, uh, I forget what you literally said. I apologize. But it was like, you know, an example of survival horror. To me, I just forgot. It was lost on me, like, how much more of a subtle performance that this movie is um, and how much time it devotes to atmosphere, relatively speaking. Because, like I mentioned earlier, when I think about Anderson's movies, I tend to oftenly go back to, like, Apocalypse or my mind is more fresh in thinking about the absolutely more outrageous takes that have come from Anderson's Resident Evil movies, um, and then the other one, Extinction, that he didn't do. So watching O2 is just like, oh my god, this is so much more subtle and nuanced, and it really takes its time with the dread, and it really takes its time with the pacing, at least in the beginning. And 
for and then it it that reminds me of the next point I wanted to talk about and what you've already been saying about hybrid and I guess actually now I feel like bringing up that word remix. Um, for someone who had no idea what I was going into, and now going you know revisiting this movie years later, it's so fascinating to me how he gives us a setting with such I'm gonna dare to say such little Resident Evil but also just enough Resident Evil, you know, with the hive not being, you know, a place of, you know, with the hive instead of Spencer Mansion, um, you know, giving us Alice as a central character, no other big names from the games. And the industrial tone, it's like, while we have this hive and we have this industrial environment of the hive, I felt like it was such a great spin on navigating Spencer Mansion. Like, I felt like it was, for lack of a better term, that time experience going through Spencer Mansion, but it's just, you know, you're in a different place, but it's still the exact same vibe. Um, did that work for you in the same way? Like, what did you think of the environmental setting of the film and that did it at least honor what those games have conveyed, at least what the first game conveyed specifically? Yeah, you know, I... I, something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, about how I think you, I believe you said like how restrained it felt or how unresident evil it feels in the very opening moments. I think I was very appreciative of that on this rewatch because I felt that it was restrained enough from diving right into, you know, the, the obvious sort of route, which would be, let's get as many zombies on screen as possible right out the jump. Let's have that moment of the zombie nibbling on somebody and then turn around, like crane its head around and stare at somebody before lunging at them. Right. Mm -hmm. The fact that you don't really get zombies for the first almost hour of the movie, mm. he spends that time establishing the setting, which I think is really the strongest aspect of it. And he has a very visually distinctive visual style that I think allows the hive to come to life in a way that it feels like it has life to it. Right. I think, that opening shot is still one of my favorite shots that he's ever done where the film opens with that long zoomed out blackness yeah. and then it start slowly starts to move in and you can see, Oh, I'm looking at the other end of a lab HUD mm. as somebody is, you know, mixing up the T virus and whatnot. Like that is such an engrossing shot that is taking a very boring mundane action that you're used to. Mm -hmm. And it's making it that much more mysterious because you're occupying the space long enough, but you don't know what the person's doing. And then of course, you know, the way in which the character, the camera zooms in more and more and more, you feel more and more involved. And then of course you have that score, which I love. Like, I think that this movie also has a score that feels very industrial while at the same time it feels, well, maybe not industrial, maybe it's more like, sterile lab almost it feels like this elevator music that you would hear in a lab kind of and it the way in which it's able to be very basic but very sort of like having a hint of mystery to it like oh there's something going on here that we don't really know all all about yet um that's one of those little qualities that i think it helps to make this kind of like on the face value generic sort of like lab setting feel like, oh, there's more to this environment than we really know. And I want to learn more about this and understand the mysteries and the secrets that it's holding. Um, I think also kind of to your point, right? The film does follow an almost Spencer Mansion kind of route in the sense that, you know, the way in which characters have to backtrack, 
or the fact that they come to parts of the lab early on that they can't access. Like when they come to that lab that's been flooded early on, right? Mm -hmm. That's an insurmountable door in the beginning of the film, which then later on they're going to be able to return back to and explore in the way that it was meant to. Like just little moments like that of backtracking, I think in terms of exploring the geography of the hive feels reminiscent to original Resi, whether or not Spencer Mansion is actually involved in that. Yeah, I um I know the word that was escaping me, you know, we've we've talked about capturing game feel. And I mean, obviously this is a film versus video game, but to me, O2 Resident Evil captures the flow state. And um you, you put it there perfectly, the whole like because I even I didn't even fucking think about that wording. This the element of backtracking that is very common in survival horror is also pretty apparent in this. And um, even in my re- in the research I did for before and after watching the movie, and it's something that I didn't even really think about. And we've talked about before, we love a good use of subtle Easter egg. Um, but there's a lot of camera techniques and cinematography in this movie that is also meant to elicit uh, imagery from the games, like top-down angles and whatnot. Um, I, I just think it's really impressive. And that's the thing, you know, you can, <clears throat> you as the individual can complain as much as you want about the quote unquote quality of the movie. But Anderson loves, he, he shows care in his source material. And I think that's very apparent in this film. I, and I, and I will say again, since even though we're not going to get into all of them, as much as we might want to have differing opinions about all the following other movies, I real I think this is actually the strongest entry that he did. Oh, I I hundred percent agree with that. Um, I think that what this film does, like what we've been kind of talking about, and we'll you know unpack a little bit more. Uh, personally, without you know going down a rabbit hole of all the other sequels, I don't feel that the other sequels that he did have this a- attention to environment, and I don't think it has the attention to characters. And characters, whether or not they're major or minor, like the whole opening section of that, when you get to see a day in the life of the hive, Mm -hmm. I think is incredibly important to making, to capturing, you know, why what is happening is more than just like a haunted house, right? For the context of a game, I enjoy the fact that, you know, I myself as the player who's going to be playing and exploring Spencer Mansion for 10 hours or whatever is going to quite literally be picking up the pieces and figuring out what happened prior to my arrival. In terms of a game, I love that. In terms of an, a 100, 110-minute movie, I need more investment from the jump because you know I want to know that it's going to have that payoff, basically, for am I going to end up caring about what's happening? And so by humanizing the hive, by showing us a day in the life, by showing these people that, by all accounts, are not involved with they are involved, but they don't understand what Umbrella's true purpose is for the most part, right? Most of them are just people working in an office, right? Even the people in the lab, though, what do they know? All they know is, oh, we're testing this new pharmaceutical drug. And so to show these people that are part of the process, but they're not complicit in the, you know, the deceptiveness of what Umbrella is doing, as far as we know, um, it furthermore, just villainizes Umbrella very quickly. It villainizes the people that are behind what is happening. Um, And considering that that you don't have a real face early on for who is behind all of this, just knowing that there's this like this force or this shroud that's kind of like pulling the puppet strings, that creates an element to this movie that I think a lot of people have championed in other films that are outside of the genre, right? I think that 
after this film, you see a lot of movies and specifically franchises, kind of like Resident Evil, that have this sort of almost like an Illuminati conspiracy aspect behind what is happening. I think the Marvel films do a little bit of uh, storytelling with that, right? Always trying to figure out who's pulling the strings behind this event or that event or, oh, how does this compare to what happened previously? And, you know, finding those little nuances and um, finding the secrets, if you will, of how this world truly operates. I, I You know, what everything you said, it's just like when we're the, the whole thing with this, Siri, one of the big things with this series is talking about what makes good adaptation. And you think about that, like you as the partaker of the art, the, you know, the designers behind the cap, you know, at Capcom there knew how to set up the pacing for you to enter a mystery. And Anderson takes that source material and it's just like, okay, I have to cater to that, but I also have to probably cater to a larger audience that doesn't know that. And yeah. I really, and I, and I, I, I want to try to not repeat too much of what you said, but I do want to piggyback off of it. When I rewatched this movie, I like that opening hit me so well. And it does hit you with this ex, uh, experience of just like, yeah. And I, and I, <laughs> you know what, let me put it this way. This is what I'll say. So being a 12 year old, I didn't understand how fucking horrible and evil capitalism was. And so now as I watch it as a 30, watch this movie as a 32 year old, I'm like, oh my God, this movie really does sell the fact that this company doesn't give a fuck about people. And it's really like evil in its efforts to contain its resources and contain its data. And of course that the movie obviously evolves into a much more blockbuster of theatrical experience but like god it's just like you know you have the scenes of the lab people being stuck in the room while it's flooding you have the fucking elevator scene which is just incredible and specifically you know the part that just like it still hit me years later because i remember seeing this and being creeped out by it at first um it's not the decapitation scene it's the scene where we get the pov of being in the shaft and we watch the other um, shoot, elevator, whatever the hell they're called, sorry, um, plummet. I was like, oh my God, that's that's twisted to see that. Um, but yeah, I love that. And I also love how we get that. And if you're a fan of the games, it's like, okay, maybe you know, I get that. The guy has to make sure all the noobs are aware. And like, we get that. And then I, for me, we get the smallest or shortest transition. And I think that's also handled so well. I don't quote me. I think it's maybe like 10 minutes of like Alice waking up and like her walking around this undisclosed place. Um, I don't know if they, I, you know, I think don't quote me again. I think they do briefly say that they're in a mansion. They just never say Spencer mansion. Um, but I digress. Um, but we get that, and then the fucking military dudes just come in through the window, and it's like they quickly guide us into the hive. Not just Alice and the cop, but they guide us, the audience, into the hive. And it's like, you know what? I love that. I love how you did that in giving this eerie, relatively slow, but well-paced-out intro about... we Now we just have questions. We're excited, and we have questions. You give us this serviceable lull and then you just 
get us into this more questions and thrills. Like, who the hell are these people? Where are they going? Okay, well, there was all this stuff happening at the beginning. How's it linked into what these, you know, troops are here for? I, I really do think it's a brilliant setup. And overall, I love the pacing of the film. Like you said earlier, I sorry, I'm just going to throw in this one last thing. I love how it takes an hour to see the zombies. Absolutely, yeah. You know, again, like, how easy would it have been for them to show the hive being overrun with zombies, right? And immediately kind of like showing their hand, which, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that's how the apocalypse opens when they go back into the hive and then the zombies immediately come out and then, you know, it's the hordes and everything, yeah. which, you know, with the original film though, you know, while I personally don't describe it as survival horror, it does have a sort of ominous buildup, I'll say, at the very beginning of the film, where again, it doesn't show its hand too quickly. And even on this rewatch, when you go above the surface again, you're barely above the surface. And that was far more streamlined than I remembered. I remembered that part being far longer from going from seeing the hive fall apart to meeting Alice, her waking up, the team shows up. I remember that being like a 20 minute portion of the film, and it's not. It's probably like 10 minutes, like you said, if that. And you know, we're not bogged down with a lot of exposition. And, no. you know, there's various sub, there's a subplot that pops up throughout the course of the film, right? These flashbacks of the amnesia wearing off and Alice learning like, oh, I'm not just this like damsel in distress that woke up in a random house, but I'm a security operative for Umbrella. And I'm basically, you know, my job is to guard the hive's entrance and whatnot. And the way in which that they revisit that on top of the current predicament of them, you know, contending with the dead and all the hellish monsters below is like pretty well paced. And I would say it's very well paced considering again, for an adaptation that is an adaptation of themes and, you know, ideas from the games, but not necessarily a beat for beat plot, you know, that's executed on in a fashion that I think is far more streamlined, but streamlined sounds passive aggressive. It's, it unfolds in a way that doesn't feel laborious or doesn't bog down the overall pacing of the film. Um, and that moment too, where like that strike team smashes in through the windows and that new metal score kicks in is still, it's like a two, a five second shot. It's still one of my favorite moments of the movie. Cause it's just so badass. It's so abrupt. And it kind of just like rejolts your, the viewers senses of like, Oh no shit stuff is popping off. We're not going to be bogged down in like needless exposition about, you know, what happened previously? What's happening now? Like, it's very, very quick. And Anderson is smart in giving the audience these little jolts of adrenaline throughout the movie yes. that do a great job of, like, pacing this out. Uh, again, for a movie that's less than two hours, um, it feels very, very brisk, I think, in just, like, the overall pacing, which helps when later on they're doing this backtracking because it doesn't feel like, oh, we're just going to retrace our steps. We're going to revisit env environments that have new actions unfolding or the environments are opening up in new ways, um, which I think, again, helps when you're kind of like re-exploring specific areas. But um, in mentioning Alice, um, we got to show some love to Mila Jovovich, who is absolutely fantastic in this. And I was surprised to learn that originally they were looking at Sarah Michelle Geller instead of wow. Mila Jovovich, which... I'm gonna. She's a lovely actress. I don't see it in this role at all. <laughs> I'm really interested. I mean, it's not gonna happen, but I'm really interested. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um. But no, Anila Jovovich. You know, I think the first. Yeah, the first time I ever saw her in a movie was The Fifth Element, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, like one of my first movie crushes ever, like you, you know, and she just, I, so I, I really liked her role. She definitely made much more of an impact. I will just say come apocalypse. Cause she was one of my first on screen, like absolutely like, badass like females that like that was the first like that was one of my first experiences where i was just like oh my god she's kicking so much fucking ass um and i, I was it was an absolute rush for me but yeah come um i remember the particular scene in o2 as an evil that absolutely sold me on her and it's her fight with the dogs um, yeah. because there's moment where she's just like you know everyone in the not it was sorry this is not the 90s but still everyone in the 90s and early aughts had to run off a wall and then just (laughs) something in the face and i i love it i'm a sucker for that we need to bring that shit back any action directors hearing this right now we need more people jumping off walls and fucking kicking people in the face when i see her do when i saw her do that to the dogs i was like oh my god yes absolutely um but i mean to to her credit in general she's just proven herself to be such an incredible action actor and i think she actually i think she deserves a lot more love for that because and uh please correct me if i'm wrong here i'm not looking looking at a wikipedia or anything i think most of her action credits are anderson's movies that's fair for her the biggest of her action roles right she was definitely in some others but i would i i think that's fair to say that her biggest action roles or the biggest action films other than Fifth Element um, have been his his films. Okay, okay. Something that I was really able to appreciate more, you know, coming back to this film for the first time in a while is, you know, how her character really kind of sidesteps the portrayal of a lot of female leads in these types of, you know, genre hybrid films at the time. I feel like for the from this particular era, like she is the strongest because of the fact that her arc doesn't feel overly condescending. It doesn't feel like it has an egregious amount of like TNA type shots, which I think these films similar of this similar space of the era were like littered with to the degree that it was almost laughable. Um, You know, like there's plenty of examples out there. We don't have to, you know, dwell on, but I think more importantly, her character feels like an actual character that's having a real arc. Again, you know, the way in which people talk about genre films a lot of the time, it's like, oh, well, it's, you know, the story and the characters are secondary to the action that's happening. But her character has a real arc here where, you know, she begins as being the amnesiac who's waking up and is trying to solve the pieces. But, you know, when she finally solves the pieces and it doesn't take a great deal of time, again, it's like that 40 minute mark, right? She doesn't have to play this sort of, the faux damsel in distress the entire film that she's portrayed as in the opening moments. But once the amnesia wears off, you know, she fully like all gas, no breaks with just her abilities. But not only that, you know, it's not just that there's an increase in the amount of action scenes she's she's doing. More importantly, it's the way in which that she's able to deal with the situation outside of the action, right? Especially you see the way in which she starts talking to squaddies in the spec ops team and whatnot. Like there's one scene where a, uh, a squad mate is like fooling around with the computer and doesn't know what he's doing. And she's like, can you do it? He goes, yeah, so do it. Like yeah. very direct, very sort of like authoritarian almost now that at that point, the major of the squad is dead. And it's just great to see a character come into their own 
in a way that feels like it is perfectly paced with the plotting of the film. Um, and a character that, again, has merit outside of the fact that she can break zombie necks with her thighs, which, you know, I'm not going to turn down any any number of scenes that we get of that. But it's more important, I think, to showcase a character that is competently well-rounded rather than just being competent in one zone, one area. Oh, yeah. Absolutely incredible. And, um, you know, I, I will end my uh, my part portion of the Mila Jovovich rant with this. For as much as, and I don't mean to keep like going back to brief illusions, but for as much as the following Resident Evil movies from Anderson and not from Anderson might waver in quality, I think what's so fascinating about all of them is that the absolute great quality you can't deny is her in every single one. I think she plays, she plays, and that it's, it's funny, you know, I think in a lot of ways, and it's like, I'm, I'm kind of very vaguely going back to like a Monster Hunter interview in my head. But, you know, a lot of people end up mostly speaking to Anderson being a fan of the source material. And like how much Anderson cares about Mortal Kombat, or he cares about Monster Hunter, he cares about Resident Evil. She's a fucking fan too. Like she cares about this shit. And I think, and that shows Again, that show she plays she plays all her roles as Alice, not too straight, but like straight enough to know like when to kick ass, when to be a little cheesy, and um, when to throw in the perfect melodrama. So yeah, I think I think she, other than the fact that the first movie has so much going for it, I think in a lot of in terms of a lot of good qualities, I think she's actually the series is saving grace. I would have turned many of the sequels off long before I did if she was not front and center uh, in those movies. But, uh, you know, I think also we got to show a little love to the rest of the cast of this first film. For you, like, who is the immediate standout outside of Mila Jovovich? Absolutely. Um, I forget what his role is specifically, if it's like sergeant or major. Colin. I think he's just known as one. Just one. Okay. So Colin Salmon. Oh, my God. That dude is so fucking cool throughout this movie. If I, I I only have two complaints about this movie, and one of them is so surface level, and it's the and what and that is that he dies early. I fucking oh absolutely I fucking hate that. Um, I would have loved to have seen him just because of his bravado and his his performance. I would have loved to have seen him in like fights, whether it was hand to hand stuff or shooting. Um. Oh my god, it just it would have been so cool. And it's such a shame that he gets killed off so early. Um I don't mean this in a negative way. I really O2 Resident Evil is so, it stands out for me because it's just a story that I really like and I really enjoy it, and I really like the presentation. Besides Jovovich and um Colin, um everyone just kind of is serviceable for me. I don't, again, I don't mean that in a shitty way. Good actors, they're doing their job, they're doing their best. But just those are the only two performances that really stand out for me. Yeah, you know, I think the only one that stands out for me other than Jovovich is uh, Michelle Rodriguez. And, you know, it's not to say that, you know, the character she's playing she hadn't done previously or a character that, you know, now you would almost say is like very kind of stereotypical, the one female member of an all-male squad. Well, that's not true. There's a a medic, yeah. a female medic too, but she 
I think says one thing and then dies promptly. Um, but you know, being a more of a primary character out of the squaddies, there's just something about her character that I like. I like that she is a character that is bucking the convention of what a squad mate would be like, specifically thinking about, you know, the time period with which this movie was released in. Just how right off the bat, the first thing that when we meet her, she's like, A, am I going to kill this guy right here in front of everybody right now? And the second thing she says is she tells him to blow her. Like, yeah. just right there, that's all you kind of need to know about this characterization of who she's playing. Um, and it, it's one of those roles that, again, we've seen sprinkles of rain in other characters that she's done. And, you know, of course, there's been plenty of uh, other characters that have been influenced by that. Yeah. But I just find that in this film, you know, again, in a film that's has such a strong female lead to see another female character that is, you know, I would say a secondary almost to her in terms of, you know, stature at that point, but also um, just in terms of, you know, her positioning within the group of who's left almost by the end of the last stand. Um, she's very memorable in that way and, you know, plays against sort of Jovovich's character of Alice, right? Alice is this person that begins very innocent and then grows very sort of steadfast and confident in her abilities and, you know, has a bit more of an edge to her, but is not as edgy or as, um, you know, I would say uh, serious and to the point as Rain is, whereas Rain is just like no filter, no nothing. And it's nice at the very end of the film to see these two that, you know, have this sort of like uncommon alliance, but it's an alliance nonetheless, considering, you know, who they have to deal with uh, outside of uh, the two, the pair of them. No, yeah, I, I, I will shout out Rodriguez as well. She does a great job. But uh, in terms of moving on from sort of our our alive counterparts, uh, let's talk about the monsters in this. Primarily, of course, reanimating the dead, the zombies. And like I said, there are, of course, the zombie dogs and the liquor, which comes in at the very the tail end of the film. Um, how do you feel that, you know, 20 years later, how does the zombies hold up? How do the creatures hold up? How does that CGI hold up for you? Yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> That might have been a little bit of a loaded question. I apologize. <laughs> I, no, 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 no. Uh, it just, it's, I, my, I do have one complaint about this movie, but I also don't want to get too ahead of myself, but I, I probably will have to touch on it a little bit here. Um, so as far as the, the zombies, I re again, like it's not the zombies themselves. I've seen some, I've seen cool looking zombies in so many things. Um, but I love how the zombies are introduced in this. Again, I love how long it takes that we're waiting for. And I love also the small touch. I love the introduction of the zombies when it comes to, um, it's that scene where they they turn the Red Queen back on, which then opens up all the doors for everything. Yes. Um, and we get small illusions, like the one zombie that's in the water and her eyes open uh, prior to that moment. And so I love that. I, I forgot how great the introduction to them are. Um, I think the two that really, the two moments that stand, and as far as like physical design, A plus, great stuff. But it's that presentation of them that means more, more to me and stands out more to me. In particular, the two scenes that stand out the most are when we just have that uh, that brief um, time to sit with the audio of the uh, um, axe being dragged. I love that. And then after that scene, um, you know, they have the shootout in that scene. Um, I think they're around pods or some kind of shit, whatever. Uh, but they're trying to open a door. 
And it's like you have this intense scene of the zombies pushing them in. They're they're getting cornered. And then they finally open that door and there's just so many more. And they grab one of the guys. And I love that. I love that. I think the presentation of the zombies themselves is really great and it still holds up. Um, The dogs, the dogs, I think, are fine. It's one of those things where it's like kind of going back to how I feel about the actors. I don't have anything negative to say but i also don't have anything like overwhelmingly positive i think again their physical design and presentation is very cool you know and again it leads to one of my favorite scenes in the movie where it's like i get someone jumping off a wall and kicking something in the face so (laughs) great job dodge i have to say out of all the creature designs in this outside of one clip at the very end of the film with the liquor the dogs i think hold up the best i think they hold up better than the zombies I find that, you know, granted, when they're moving, the dogs don't look great. But when they're standing there and like licking their chops and staring at Alice, I think that they look great. I like their design. I like I think that while I'm sure there is some CGI there, those were practical like those were dogs that then I think they amended a little bit with practical, but also CGI. But I think I actually read that the dogs were the most difficult part of filming because they kept licking the fake blood off. (laughs) And so it kind of kept fucking up all the makeup design and whatnot. But I thought those looked great. Um, The zombies, I think I was spoiled. I'd seen too many quality zombie movies before this one, Uh, even at the time, right? Going back and thinking about older zombie movies I'd been seeing that were all practical. Um, Not to say they look terrible here, but like that one that, turns around and faces the camera and he's got like a chunk of his cheek missing. I'm just like, ah, it's a little, a little too much CGI for me, but. So I did a quick Google search. So for me, this, it was great for the zombies. It was great. You know, seeing it now, I think about how two years later, relative speaking, I would end up seeing Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. Um, And that would be like fucking top tier zombie for me. So, but like, since I hadn't seen anything like that before, for me, sure, it was an experience where it's like the zombies were very cool. Um, I really actually don't remember what my first introduction to zombies were, but hey, you know what? For the sake of this conversation, Ari, you know, Resident Evil O two is the first time I can remember a zombie, so maybe that has something to do with it. Um, <clears throat> the liquor, I really <laughs> did not like on this viewing. Um, I really did not like it, and it blows my mind. Um, I don't remember if it was like just two years or when when Apocalypse came out, but I'm just like, so if it's a, if it's let's say it's two years, if it's only two years after O2, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, why does that liquor look so much fucking better than the O2 one? Like what? And like, and again at twelve, like twelve, fucking eating it up. I'm not. I'm like, monster with big tongue? Yes. Give it to me. Gore? Give it to me. Watching this now, I'm just like, yeah, I'm looking forward to like this cool, cheesy looking monster that I dig. Yeah. And I just thought it looked too awful. I thought it looked like, it, it really threw me out of the moment. And it does also, so that is half of my issue. That is half of my one big issue with Resident Evil 02. That's all I'll say for now. Yeah, you know, the moment that I was kind of alluding to was at the very end when they're fighting it in the train car, the only instance that I think the liquor looks good is there's like two or three quick close-up shots of like, I don't know if it's an interior, but it's a very close-up practical shot of the liquor itself. You get a close-up shot on like, 
its rib cage or its mouth opening or something, which is all practical. And that looks really, really great. It's just anytime that the camera pans out and all of a sudden it's just all CGI. Like, I don't think any of that looks good particularly. And, you know, it's not worth really harping on because, again, it's a byproduct of 20 plus year old CGI at this point. Um, but yeah, you know, overall, I would say to your point, two years later, you've got Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, which I think still has some of the best practical zombies and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. But I was just curious, you know, if there were any designs that kind of stood out to you, uh, or not. It's just to me, other than the liquor, I, I think it's all good. And to me, it still holds up. I, um, I don't actually look at those zombies or the dogs and think any level of cheese about it or like, Oh, look at look at its time, right? The reaction I have to the liquor does not apply to the zombies or the dogs. One thing before we move on to maybe some of our mem- most memorable moments from Resident Evil, you're obviously a big metal guy. Yeah. Um, what do you think of the film score? Whether it's you know Marco Beltrami's um, sort of influence or just overall you know how they were able to kind of convey this. I suppose, ought sensibilities to what is, you know, an adaptation of a beloved horror franchise? Well, for all transparency, because I think it's important to acknowledge. um, So I, I, you know, the score itself sounds great. I think it's very cool. Um, I don't want to mess up that, you know, the composer's name. So I apologize. Uh, What was Marco Beltrami, I believe. Incredible talent. Um, It also should be worth addressing that Unfortunately, part of the composition is done by Marilyn Manson, which is really oh, that's right. And to share for as fucking cool as that score sounds, and as much as it sure. to the great industrial environment, I do think it's worth just noting that. Um, mm-hmm. So, only speaking to Marco Beltrani, um, that's an awesome talent, and I think what he did was an incredible, awesome job in you. Fueling and amplifying the industrial tone of the hive. And um, I think the only time I've ever, or no, well, because no, I really liked the score behind Doom 05. And I really love the industrial tone of um, the recent Doom video games. So it's like, when I, when I think about industrial tones, I don't know, I mostly have good memories about them. Um, especially in those 90s, early aughts action movies. And so, yeah, what Beltrami did, I um, I think it's really great. And also in terms of just fucking action scenes, Jesus Christ, yeah. incredible. So absolute rush. Yeah. And plus, you know, on principle, I kind of have to give the movie, I guess, five stars at the end of the day because it ended with a, a Slipknot song, yes. which, you know, is my yes. my duty as a Slipknot fan. But uh... <laughs> I forgot that. So, OK, so, yeah, um, little pluck here. Um, but I recently did a listicle for The Pit where um, I wrote about the most new metal movies ever made. Uh, and I do <laughs> um, because its soundtrack is fucking awesome. It sounds yeah. so fucking good. I knew Slipknot was on the soundtrack. I just forgot that they pop up first when the credits play. And I'm just like, yes, yes, give it to me. Um, Slipknot was my big teenage band. Like that. That, that is the band that got me into metal. Like I, God, I, I got to stop myself. You know, <laughs> I got to stop myself. But yeah, that is whole nother podcast, whole right? Podcast. But yes, um, the Slipknot inclusion is fantastic. And like, yes, I do think that for what the score does, 
it's not, it's actually just not just thrilling music. I think it actually does help to work in terms of the atmosphere and also the action. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, let's chat about those memorable moments. Sure. You know, you kind of, we've mentioned Perfect. sort of uh, a few of them, right? The zombie wall run dog kick. You've got, uh, you know, we have to mention the security laser hallway, which is uh, still probably the most, uh, I would argue the most iconic moment of the movie, I, I, probably, I, I, or the most well-recognizable one. I mean, that scene still is so awesome. And, you know, to see that scene from the movie, show up in a game uh, later on is just so unbelievably rad. And probably the first instance I could ever think of the reverse, right? Yeah, Obviously, you would assume that lots of scenes from a, the game would be in the movie, but in that one, it's vice versa. I'm trying to think, I mean, I mean, my top three in no particular order. I actually, number one is again, wall kick. Um, and then after that, I really just love the intro. I love the that intro, like I you know gushed about earlier. And then I love the laser scene. The laser scene is just so cool. I wish the movie had like a little bit more of like um, trap scenes to it. Mm. Obviously the zombie presence in itself is already enough suspense. And I think that's pretty well done. And as as far as pacing and how, because we're not bombarded with zombies constantly. We get enough zombies and then we get enough time to relax and then we get zombies. Um. Yeah, I think those are the three scenes that really stay out the most to me. Again, the wall jump, the intro with the employees, and then the um, the laser scene. Yeah, I just I love how the laser scene kind of it throws you for a loop because what are you expecting? You're expecting zombies, right? Or you're expecting some kind of more traditional trap. And the fact that the laser just keeps building and building and building to the point where like, this is insurmountable, right? doesn't matter that this guy is the squad leader. There's nothing he can do to get out of this in the moment. Um, there's like a, I think that that scene perfectly encapsulates how villainous uh, Umbrella is, right? Because yeah. it's the idea that it's like the first two, you could kind of avoid with any, with a large amount of skill. But then that last one, it's like, no, they don't just make sure that they kill the intruder. They remove almost all traces of them and turn them into giblets. Um, another scene that is not action heavy, but it's like a small moment that I think kind of almost captures uh, Anderson's old horror sensibilities with something like um, Event Horizon is when they're running around the sewers, right? And Alice starts shooting at the zombies and there's, it's probably like 10 seconds, maybe not even that long, where the camera is just sort of lingering on different shots of the empty sewer system. Mm. And you just hear the gunshots reverberating throughout the sewer. Um, and that's like such a strange little moment because it's capturing the horror of their reality, but it's very restrained. It almost takes it back to the beginning of the movie where it's not concerned with putting a horde of zombies in front of you or putting a liquor in front of you. It's kind of just like letting you soak in the environment and realize like, oh, this could be their last stand. Like yeah. I kind of wish that the movie had more moments like that or not even specific to Resident Evil, I suppose. Um, just Anderson in general was able to take more quiet beats in his movies. I don't know. He has a way with like playing around with um, liminal spaces and environments in his older films that isn't really apparent in his newer films. Granted, you know, they need to be larger than life and whatnot all the time, which oh, again, there's an audience for that. Uh, I just wish that, you know, he was still able to take these quieter beats in more of his films. Yeah, well, I mean, that kind of goes back to the comment made um, 
about just how not only it will kind of goes back to that comment. Not only do I think that this is his strongest Resident Evil entry, um, I think it's the most nuanced um, and it's the most different because whatever, you know, with God, I'd be so fascinated going back in time or even talking to him now and being like, so, you know, what was the deal? Like, you clearly didn't come for movie two or three. Um, so did you have intentions to do a two and a three? And what was your, like, like what were you mapping out for a narrative? Because would he have continued that kind of nuanced, more restrained, subtle tone with two? Oh, uh, sorry. Or, yeah, with two. Because when we got Apocalypse, that's the first time we get, like, unhinged action. And I feel like ever since two, even though I love it, um, each entry just gets more and more absurd. And he, and like, you know, to your, to the point, sort of to the point you said, he has to match that at this point. I don't think the studio would ever let him go back to restraint come like entry five, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I guess one last thing before, if you're ready to move on to um, yeah, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. Yes. Um, but my last sort of moment that I think is, Literally perfect, right? If you were going to end a Resident Evil movie like this, I think this movie has the perfect ending that could be built upon or it could just be this is kind of like, hey, if we come back to this series, we will. It's great. But if not, this is the perfect ending, the only ending this could have. And that's that final shot of Alice waking up in the Umbrella Lab. Raccoon City has, of course, been overrun. And she comes out and immediately finds a shotgun and then has that moment where she's like, no, no, no. It's not the damsel in distress from the very beginning of the movie anymore. This is Alice the Badass. And she you know, pumps that shotgun. That new metal score kicks in. And you've got that, I mean, quite literally a fantastic crane shot going all as a pull back. You can just see the full scale destruction of Raccoon City and just how decimated it is. And that's not going to stop her from, you know, taking the fight to Umbrella and whatever, you know, comes with that. And I, I absolutely adore the ending to this movie. And then, like I said, you get that uh, Slipknot needle drop. A plus there. That is so eerily perfect that that's what you want to end on. Um, <laughs> because I, I, I absolutely had to talk about the ending too. Because the only thing that saves the ending for me is that specific moment with Alice because otherwise the one actual issue I have with O2 Resident Evil is its ending. Um and specifically when I say it's ending, just to be clear, um it's the and I don't want to get too ahead of myself here, but it's the it's the liquor quote unquote fight. Um, something that I have noticed as a it, it, as a very similar issue that's shared between O2 Resident Evil and Welcome to Raccoon City are just the concepts of big that are barely cared to. These great big setups that just end like a snap. And I was just like, you know, with, with the liquor, I'm just like, here's your first like big and unique monster. Like really like monster that's not a zombie or the zombie dog. And like, that's all you gave me. Yeah, it's cheap ass CGI, and <laughs> the thing is just dead because it gets impaled, impaled and stuck under a train like that. Yeah, like, that's it, and it's just like God damn, and like yeah, I, like 
that's so that's the the reason I bring it up is because that's the one point in the movie where it's like, you know, really like the momentum's there, the momentum's there. And I'm like, I'm in it, I'm feeling the flow, I dig it, and then that just crashes for me. Like then, like there I fell off. And I'm like, you kind of lost me. You had a great pace. And then, you know, we kind of get that. We, well, we don't kind of get, excuse me. We get the scene where they get above in, back into that mansion. And then the cop character who ends up becoming a boy in the second movie. Um, Nemesis cop, favorite Resident Evil monster. Favorite, all time. Um, and then if it ended there, even I would be like, okay, cool, cool tease. I guess, again, when I saw this movie, I actually wasn't familiar with Nemesis. Um, so cool tease, whatever have you, um, but whatever. But the fa- I think it's the only thing that saves that ending is everything you just talked about with her, with the shotgun and then the crane out of the city. Because then I'm just like, okay, this is some crazy shit. That whole thing <laughs> from underground is now above ground. I'm fucking... <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that had the movie ended with you know, this kind of like, Matt's going to be mutating. We need to put him in the nemesis program. Like if it had ended there, I feel like the ending to this movie kind of like saves that back half that really does feel underwhelming. Like we said, with that liquor fight, which isn't wildly underwhelming. Um, And then kind of just like this, okay, so we're just kind of like throwing this name out from the other series to kind of like have a bridge for where we're going to grow this. Right. Cause I think that like this idea that nemesis was a mistake that was created rather than something that was very purposefully made as a bioweapon from umbrella from the start. Like, again, this is where it kind of gets into this murky waters of like, well, we're not really adapting this properly, the source material, right? Because that is not the basis of nemesis. And so if that's where the film had ended, I would have been like, oh, you know, I enjoyed the first half of the movie or the first three fourths of the movie, but then like the ending falls apart. So the fact that they're able to really kind of like save the film from that nosedive from that ending into something that like actually kind of feels the most like Resident Evil, actually, the most survival horror aspect of the movie, perhaps for me, where it captures that very classical feel of, you know, okay you're in the midst of this apocalypse and all you have is your wits and a shotgun. That's all you have. That's all you need. Um, and that's kind of the send off for what would be, you know, a, uh, seven film journey for Alice. Um, and yeah, you know, we've mentioned a little bit about the sequels and how, you know, the tonal difference that really sprouted from the original film. Uh, now I want to talk a little bit about, a film that was the most recent iteration of Resident Evil that has left behind Alice's saga. We've, and I say finally moved on, not the sense that like, oh, it was, I was tired or bored of it, but just more so like experiencing more of what Resident Evil has to offer from this new character. I think anybody, no matter how much you've enjoyed the Alice saga, I think it's seven films, six or seven films. It's a lot for a series. It also dug a hole for itself becoming too much outrageous action in my opinion yeah oh yeah yeah i think that you know when you talk about you know what alice was as a character in the beginning to where she ended it just feels like it's a series of traits that were not what made alice such an interesting protagonist in the first film um and if anything again 
I don't want to get too in the weeds about my, uh, my, my dislike of those sequels and whatnot, because I know they have their audience. But I am in- really interested to find out what you think of uh, writer and director Johannes Roberts' 2021 Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, which, as I said, is a fresh start for Resident Evil that takes audiences way back to 1998 as the film blends the events of the first two Resident Evil games into one narrative. Um, so, you know, one of the critiques, I suppose, of the original Resident Evil, Wes Anderson, or <laughs> Wes Anderson's, Paul W.S. Anderson's I, I original film. Fuck out of that, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> His original film was drawing more from ideas and concepts rather than a plot point. Roberts goes in the opposite direction where he says, I'm going to take the two biggest survival horror games of all time and merge them into one less than two hour film. So it splits time between the stars, special forces investigating the events at Spencer mansion from Resident Evil one, and then blends that with Leon Kennedy and Claire Redfield in raccoon city in the police department as raccoon city is, you know, falling to the hordes. Um, So considering your feelings on, you know, Anderson's films and how you were a fan of them, you know, what do you think about Robert's fresh tonal start for Resident Evil? So, yeah, just like in the sense that I came into O2 Resident Evil with that movie being my first great introduction to the game series and franchise, whatever have you, <clears throat> with Welcome to Raccoon City, now you got me in it. Like, now I'm a fan. Now I'm a lot more critical, if you will. Um, like, I, I've in it. I've played multiple games. I've watched Anderson's movies, the CGI movies, like I'm in the fandom. So I have much more of a critical eye. And uh, the trailers didn't really convey anything to me. So I'm going in once again with uh, vague high expectations. And I got to say, I really like slash love this movie, but I also have so many more issues with it than I do Anderson's version. You know, for I, this is probably the only, you know, of the series that you and I have talked about and what have you. This is probably the one video game movie adaptation I get hung up on. Um, How quick we are to forget Doom Annihilation. <laughs> Doom Annihilation <laughs> is trash and it's allowed to be trash even though I have issues with it. This, I think what it is, is there's so, and see, I'm getting way too ahead of myself, but. Well, I was going to say, what if we begin with perhaps what he's able to accomplish that is successful that perhaps Anderson himself and his films didn't necessarily capitalize on? Okay. Well, I, let's. And then we'll get into our gripes. Fair enough. Because I have my fair share of them as well. So I, I, just a little twist to what you said. I think Anderson did this pretty well in the first movie, but it's lost in all the other movies. And this movie, I, I I will fight with you or anyone. I think it has the perfect survival horror tone and atmosphere. Oh my, I will not fucking debate that. I think it's absolutely incredible. You know, I'm, yeah, I, it, it's tough to show this, but you shared a scene on Twitter recently where it's just like, you know, I think this is like the perfect encapsulation of survival horror. And it's a Spencer Mansion scene where, um, one of the characters is just in the dark and he can't see where zombies are coming at him. And that vibe of tension is constant throughout, you know, that, that whole beginning of Anderson's um, umbrella scene 
it's that tension and even like you know pseudo dread actually like and uh, being actual dread in welcome to raccoon city and i i am just hooked on that and God, no matter how much dialogue I have to work through, that atmosphere still that atmosphere still works for me. Um, I was also just so startled. Uh, and I, I mean that. I don't mean that to be hyperbolic, but I was startled. Again, coming off of years of these intense action Resident Evil movies and the CGI uh, Resident Evil movies. And just getting this thing that felt like Romero's The Crazies. Oh my god, I'm sucked. I'm like, thank you. Give me a nuanced, maybe even slightly artsy Resident Evil, please. Um, and then it, yeah, it eventually shifts from that. But I, I would tell you that 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 presentation is never lost. Um, and then that goes into how the monsters are presented, which we'll go into later. But like, I, to me, the video game feel that is so important. He's so dominant here. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think that why this film clicks for me in a way that the Anderson films never did is that, you know, Roberts has latched on to the darker tone of Resident Evil. That's always been apparent, right? Yeah. This feels far more like a survival horror game for me than Anderson's film do for many of the reasons that you mentioned, right? I think that, the world itself of Raccoon City and the different locales and whatnot, they have the texture of those places, not just because they're quite literally darker, but more importantly, the length that they go to establish the setting of what it's like when we arrive, I think is really important. Yes. Um, you know, something that it took a, uh, two watches for me to really get an appreciation for was the portrayal of Umbrella, right? You know, you view Umbrella as this mega conglomerate um, espionage kind of company that's dealing with all these things. But the fact that this is such a localized portrayal mm. of an international organization and seeing the grassroots effects that it's having on this very small blue collar town and how, you know, at one point Umbrella came in, the town flourished and now Umbrella is leaving to move somewhere else and the town is dying. You get that brief bit of text that says the only people that are still here are people that are too poor to leave, right? And so you get to see Raccoon basically pulling the rug, or rather Umbrella pulling the rug out from underneath Raccoon City and essentially killing it uh, to the degree that people are spray painting like fuck Umbrella on the sign that says welcome to Raccoon City. Um, but I think also, you know, the way in which they're able to show Umbrella as this like cancerous organization that it is, is that the zombie outbreak, we don't have to have this kind of like cliched moment. Well, yeah, a test subject broke out and bit somebody. It's more nefarious than that. And, you know, it plays really well in our current climate of all of these different uh, ecological disasters, man-made ecological disasters, right? The fact that the zombie virus spreads because umbrella chemicals are leaching into the water and all the townspeople are drinking them and getting sick and becoming infected that way. Like, Little details like that, I think, do a good job of, you know, for a, a movie about the dead coming back to life, it does a good job of, I think, grounding the villain in a way that kind of sheds some of that, the international aspect of Umbrella, which always is kind of like what Anderson, in my opinion, got a little carried away with, which is why Umbrella turns or um, Resident Evil movies turned into like Mad Max at a certain point. 
in the later sequels, right? Where it's like, oh, we're going to jump around between this continent and that continent. And it's like, everybody's got these crazy war rigs and stuff like that. And this is much more localized and small scale. Granted, if he ever does a sequel, it will probably get much larger and get it more into the conspiracy stuff. But I like the fact that he does a good job of showing Umbrella's impact on Raccoon City and also their multifaceted nefarious nature, right? Because not only are they this pharmaceutical company that's bought out the police department, but they also have this orphanage that makes them look like this fantastic sort of like humanitarian company side of them. But then what are they doing? Well, they're taking orphans and they're experimenting on them, right? Which I think it all kind of makes this little microcosm that on some level presents Resident Evil in a way that is almost more believable, you know, until the dead come back to life. No, the the world building and the lore being used to create this, um, see, in this case, I like using the word remix. This remixed take of uh, Resident Evil is super effective. Um, I also just want to note while we're talking about all this, unlike, and again, with those great examples, I'm not going to beat a dead horse here, with all the great examples we've talked about in Anderson's first Resident Evil movie, you know the one thing that was just never really there with any of those other Resident Evil movies? They didn't feel like horror movies. And this movie feels like a horror movie. Um, Yep. So for, you know, I, it's funny, it's weird. As much as I love this movie, I actually have only seen it twice. Um, I've only seen it twice too. Second time being for this episode. And I specifically noted two things. Um, Hated the Zoom we get with young Claire when she's a kid. Um, Juan, James Juan uses, and his cinematographers use that kind of Zoom a lot. And it's just the thing that tells me that something fucked is going to happen. And that always gets me, that always gives me chills. Um, the other thing that absolutely gave me chills and made me so fucking uncomfortable. And it's also, and call me out if I'm wrong here, but really nuanced for a Resident Evil property. Um, but it's the scene with uh, adult Claire and they had just hit the infected person. And so like, her and the truck driver are scattering and whatever have you. Da, 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 da. And we eventually get to the point where Claire just turns to the woods and we see the figure just standing there. And yeah. I'm just like, how many times in Resident Evil have we, as the Avatar, walked to that figure or that figure come to us and yeah. none of that happens? And I'm just like, you motherfucker. You treat <laughs> me up so fucking much. I'm already a sucker for like those kinds of thinly veiled like visual scenes. Um, but the movie, with the exception of the like towards its end, um, really holds on to those visuals so well and that presentation so well. Um, I, I, I would have to say, you know, and obviously we'll talk about this more, but like of the two main storylines it follows, I think it's the most effective with the Spencer Mansion stuff. Absolutely, yeah. And funny that you mentioned uh, James Wan because he was originally supposed to produce this. Oh, no shit. Him and uh, Greg Russo were both supposed to pro- – Greg Russo who went on to uh, write the uh, new Mortal Kombat movie. Yeah. Uh, they were supposed to produce that before they had a bunch of creative differences and uh, bowed out. But yeah, you know, I guess let's get into those plot lines, right? Because you have, again – 
Spencer Mansion, and then you have what is unfolding at the uh, RPD station. And uh, yeah, let's start with Spencer Mansion because that is the strongest part of this movie, I think, in that the fact that once you're establishing how all these characters are coming back together, Claire is searching for her brother, Chris, who, you know, they grew up in the Umbrella Orphanage and left. And then Chris became kind of endowed to Umbrella and became, you know, a member of STARS, which is the RPD special ops team. And then they're going to investigate Spencer Mansion, where another team has disappeared. Meanwhile, you have Leon Kennedy, who's a rookie on his first day, who is uh, trying not to fuck up and somehow manages to put his foot into more of a, uh, a bee's nest than when he began. Um, and Spencer Mansion, it drives me insane because I love that portion of the film. I love the way that they portray the mansion, the ways in which, you know, it's lit. Like you said, it feels like the first instance of Resident Evil actually feeling like a horror movie for a change um, instead of the, being this like, again, this remix of action and, uh, and horror, heavier emphasis on action. But the fact that we don't spend more time in Spencer Mansion is absolutely 1000% grating as fuck. It kills yeah. me because you see what they're working with and you can see how faithful they've recreated that space. And the fact that they're able to create the best scene in the movie, which is the one you mentioned, right? And that's when, you know, of course, all hell breaks loose. The zombies are swarming Chris and the other stars members. And Chris has this moment where he's on his own and he's kind of like stumbling through the dark. He goes from his primary weapon, which is the only thing that's illuminating the room, right? Every time he shoots, you get a brief spurt of what's going on. Yeah. He goes from his primary to his secondary to his knife and a lighter. And there's this beautiful transition that really captures what it feels like to be panicking in a survival horror game. Wow. The amount of times you're pissing through ammo and then you allow yourself to get overwhelmed and all of a sudden you're down to, you know, your butter knife and a lighter. And it's the first time that I've really seen survival horror play out in a way that feels legitimately convincing and channels the terror of what it's like to experience that as a player. It's astoundingly masterful. I like, you know, I'm careful to throw that kind of wording around, but like, it's really like, again, when you're talking about the feel of a game that captures it, it's so, so fucking incredible and masterful. I hope that was handled. Um, you know, the choreography of that action, and the, and the pacing used throughout Spencer Mansion. And to the point you made earlier, yeah, I, I, I have obviously I haven't done like a literal comparison of time between what's the, but it is egregious to me how much more time is given to the quote unquote Resident Evil 2 narrative of yeah. that raccoon, the raccoon police department. And there's stuff there that I like. It looks great. Yeah, but it just does not compare to the Spencer Mansion stuff. And like, and that also creates a weird dynamic there, right? Because like, you know, would they have been able to cape up with the, the greatness of Spencer Mansion? It's like, well, yeah, I'd like to think so. But for the little, relative little that we get, God, like I'm just eating it up. It's just absolutely incredible. Um I I I wanted to ask, you know, like when it comes to the zombies of and the dog and the zombie dog dogs of uh this resident evil movie how do they hold up for you because for me i i mean there's an oceanic difference between talking about o2 resident evil and welcome to raccoon city because 
Um, to some, even though there's like, you know, a lot of CGI use in this movie, the zombies just look much creepier. Um, and again, I think there's a lot of, and I hope I'm using this correctly, this terminology, but I think the choreography of how the groups of zombies are handled is so fantastic. I, um, it's the, unfortunately, I, I'm, I apologize. I cannot remember the other, this individual's name. But there's a scene in particular that stands out to me. Because, again, great horror movie shot. But it's one of the stars members that ends up getting killed. And, you know, he's shooting his way through all different zombies. But, I I mean, the pressure is just kind of stacking. And if I'm remembering the scene carefully, or correctly, excuse me, the, the camera shot is pretty tight on him. I don't think it's jutting out too much or showing us too many angles. But we're pretty, like close on him and like what he's shooting at and what he's going at and then we're just seeing that more bodies are coming at him and then he gets pinned to a wall and we just see that they're biting and then we get this great I, it's one of my fucking favorite shots um because it's, it's just it's a weird shot sorry i'm geeking out too much here <laughs> but we're you're in the right podcast to geek out about we're in we're in a weird staircase angle like it's not something straightforward. It's not something straight down. There, there's stuff that's blocking the violence, and we just get this weird ethereal angle of almost looking down, but almost looking too much straight forward as from a distance as these zombies are eating um, this guy. And I think that's what stands out for me the most when it comes. Sorry, along with the atmosphere. The second thing that stands out for me is that when it comes to Spencer Mansion and not so much Raccoon Police Department, the zombie choreography is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think building, well, for sure, is that scene you mentioned with the stairwell, right? I think that that is one of those little visual nods to the games, right? Because that feels like it is one of those uh, fly-on-the-wall camera perspectives from the original game, right? Mm. I think that, you know, there's a little bit of awkwardness to how it's composed, and it's at this kind of like almost dynamic, unique angle. But at the same time, you know, there's so much personality in that more than just this very traditional sort of top down angle, like you mentioned. Um, furthermore, with the zombies, you know, part of what I had mentioned about the way in which they are becoming infected in this and from being the water supply, you know, a good part of the movie before you get to the end of it, when they look more like traditional zombies the first part, when especially when they're at those gates of the RPD, they look like Chernobyl victims, right? Their f- fucking hair is falling out. They're bleeding from their eyes and their mouths, and like it, it looks very like like a cancerous rot almost, which is far more disturbing, I think, than what you end up seeing in like the more traditional zombies, even in the Spencer Mansion part. But in terms of when you get to Spencer Mansion, you know, it's not the best zombie designs I've seen. But the way in which Roberts has those scenes lit, it allows them, I think, to be far more memorable and terrifying than if it was in Anderson's film when everything is, you know, brightly lit and whatnot. Because you can start to see, obviously, the more flaws and things like that. Yes. And so, you know, a big part of the composition of scenes, I think, does a lot to not only allow the environmental texture to be more apparent in Roberts' film, but also all the creatures in it. Uh, it lets it, you know, except for uh, <laughs> that uh, that enemy at the end, which we'll get into uh, uh, later. Yes. But um, 
I think overall, you know, the way in which the zombies are handled and portrayed and even, you know, a character like Lisa Trevor, right, who I don't know if it's necessarily the most faithful or well utilization of that character. Uh At the same time, I think that it looks fucking fantastic, the practical work on that and the makeup and the fact that, you know, the sack that is on her face is just turned slightly so one eye can see like it is incredibly disturbing and creepy and the portrayal of that um, is very memorable even if the portrayal of the character as a whole is perhaps uh, not the greatest you and I are of of two different camps buddy (laughs) that's all I'll say for now (laughs) when it comes to Lisa Trevor well I think that um, we should talk a little bit about the casting here because again unlike Anderson's film there were plenty of elements from the world of Resi, but not characters that were from the source materials. Yes. It's the opposite here. This is- All of the characters here in Robert's film are from the two games. So who was the most notable for you? Who worked? And uh, who were the ones that were perhaps not their best portrayals of these beloved characters? All right. So as always, I am going to apologize for any mispronunciations. Um, but to me, 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 me speaking personally and also trying to speak objectively. I the best performance in this movie is uh Kaya Skoldario or Skoldario, excuse me, um, as Claire Redfield. I think she was absolutely awesome. Um, kind of actually, you know, to your point, um, Jay, about like everything about Mila's Alice turning into an authoritative figure. And, you know, Kaya has that from the beginning with Claire. And I really love that about her. I love just, I love her no bullshit and her banter with Chris, um, you know, being the one to save people when they're in trouble, like when Leon's constantly in trouble or the police chief is almost mauled by the dogs. Um, I, I just, I thought she was fantastic. I thought she was really good. And... Yeah, I, I I just have nothing but praise for her. Um, after that, I really find almost every other performance in this movie to be <laughs> insufferable. Um, yeah, I, that that is my big big con with Welcome to Raccoon City. For again, I fucking like slash love this movie, and yet most of everyone in it drives me mad. I think that. Uh, everybody looks the part as they should, I would say. Yes. They do not embody these characters well at all, I would say, outside of Claire. Again, Claire, I think Kaya gives the best performance. Um, and, you know, I think that somebody like Robbie Amell is perfectly serviceable. Tom Hopper, I don't hate as Albert Rusker, but everybody else. Um, and, you know, that's one of those characterizations that is very different than yeah. in the game. Okay. But at the same time, I don't necessarily hate it either. Okay. Um, So great point. Sorry. Okay. I'm going to contradict for a hot second. That is a part of the film where it's just like, no, this is my character. And I like this character, how they are. But you know what? It is an interesting take on Wesker. It it, it didn't compare to the other portrayals. It didn't grind my gears. So yeah, I am going to shout out Tom Hopper. Um, Love him from Umbrella Academy. And I, I dig it. It doesn't necessarily work for me a ton, but I just, I did want to interject for a hot second and be like, you know what? It's a cool take. 
Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not going to say I prefer it or it it gives me a new appreciation, but it's one of those deviations that I find that it could have an avenue for something interesting, even if in this film it doesn't necessarily go there. <laughs> it's the type of thing when all the other performances and ad- and uh, portrayals are just so off kilter for me in such a big way. Like I have to get to it. Uh, no, no, uh, no shade to Avon who plays uh, Leon S. Kennedy, but this is easily. The worst, I think this is a worse portrayal than the portrayal of Leon in the uh, Anderson films. And that's fucking saying something because 100%. I understand Leon Kennedy is the rookie. He could be the guy that is always three steps behind. He could be a doofus at times. The fact that he is just like the butt of this never ending joke that is never funny the entire film. It's like, why the fuck would you even bother including him? In that. And, you know, again, we talked a lot in, with about Anderson's film about this B movie energy that he channels at times that's so integral to the games. This leaves B movie humor territory for me because of how one note it is yeah. and how reoccurring it is and how his character just like outside of shooting the bazooka at the end, he never really has any growth or coming into going from a rookie to being the person that could be that is the savior of them at the very end of the movie. And all of this, I think, can be explained by the biggest glaring factor of this film for me, which is that there is too much going on for this movie's own good. It's one of those movies that I think would have benefited from being even longer, mm. which is not something I say very often. Uh, but Welcome to Raccoon City is so overstuffed with them trying to conflate two entire games into one and it makes for this hodgepodge of a narrative that has glimmers of something that really works before it jumps to the elements that don't. And it's that back and forth that starts to give you whiplash in terms of the quality and tone that you can also almost completely see being the root of why so many elements of this start to fall apart. I think. 100% agree with you there. I, um, I also am going to say 100% in regards to, you know, Leon being the absolute again no shade to the actor but like worst part of the cast because when you have a character like that i think this goes for a lot of media or a lot of storytelling you know that joke that ends up becoming the you know being beaten like a dead horse is set in place so that eventually the individual fights through something they prove themselves in some great way and we we want to root for them because Maybe we see something earnest in them. And I think he just sucks the whole time. He just continues to be cowardly. He continues to not, you know, make too much of an effort until the fucking bazooka scene. And it's just like, oh, my God. Like, so not only is everyone tearing on you and the film wants me to know how much we're going to tear on you. You're not even going to try much. You know, because they give him these whiny, this whiny dialogue. And it's like, you know, I, that's, that's not even like, it, it's what's so weird to me is just like, for how much detail that this movie pays attention to in regards, particularly to the, again, to the environments and the monsters, it's just like, what was missed out on with the actors, um, you know, or whether that's, whether it's the direction or the writing, I, I, I don't know, obviously, but you know, if you had to glimpse YouTube videos of Leon S. Kennedy, 
how did you get that? You know, because even RE2, Kent Leon, is nothing like that. A little impish? I Impish is probably the wrong word, but like, you know, maybe a little, but like... Yeah, a little greener on the gills like a rookie should be, but it's not... You see him grow and flourish and what separates yeah. him from being a rookie to the hero of this game by the end of it. And in, and again, I, you know, clearly I, the Wesker thing didn't really bother me a whole lot, even though it really bugged some people. But the fact that you're going to, if you're going to be taking these deviations, it needs to serve a greater purpose than like, he's just a punchline in this movie. It's such a scene. And he has, he has no cool action scenes. He has no scene that really like shows him coming into the role. And it's just like, I don't know. It it really, really irks me because it's taking a character that is so strong. And, you know, again, it gets back to the nature of this just being so overstuffed to the degree that, like, you can't really develop any of them because we're jumping between so many characters so many so quickly yeah. and so many different events that it ends up just being this fucking mess of a hodgepodge that um, unfortunately feels very messy. But at the same time, I'm not nearly as critical of this movie overall. I think as a lot of people are, because again, the film visually is so engaging and so rich texturally, I think, um, in the sense that like Robert's just, he really nails the survival horror aspect, you know, obviously in that scene we mentioned, but I think overall this movie just looks the part, which is the first time I think you can say that about a Resident Evil film since Anderson's film from 2002. I agree. Absolutely. I also, um, I do want to also speak to, um, so if there's anything that gets on my gears a little, and this isn't going to be like anything shit talking per se, quote unquote, um, but if there's anything that can kind of rub me the wrong way than like an unsufferable character, it's also a character that like I see potential in and they're just way too flat. Um, So Robbie Amell as Chris Redfield was fine to me. Where I felt disappointed was actually uh, Hannah John Kamen or Kaman, uh, Kamen as Jill Valentine because absolutely I I you know subjectively speaking saw great scenes with her and she is a great actor and to me I I I am um, again like I I want to be very careful because I don't want to shit on anyone here but you know in Avon's case or in for Leon. I don't know if that's a script thing or maybe he was diving too much into the role in the wrong way or the wrong direction. I think Hannah did a great job with presenting a Jill that is a little bit of what I've played in the games and just also making it her own. And I I feel in that case, the issue with quote unquote, the issue with her is that the movie didn't give her enough time. And that bothers me a lot. I think that's a, I think she was a great character that the film should have given a lot more time to. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, like such a strong pivotal character from the franchise. And, you know, you really don't get great glimpses of her throughout the film of showing that. Right. I think the probably the best interactions are her early on when she meets Leon and that she's like kind of clarifying, she's not like all the other people, but she's part of this group. So she has to go along with the punches when they're being thrown his way. And also her interactions with uh, Wesker. Yep. But then like there are these little moments where it's like she shoots the bird when it's right next to his face or something like that. Yep. It's just like 
So she's basically a rookie then just like Leon, except Leon would have shot Wesker in the face yeah. instead of the bird. Like little, little moments like that. You're just, just kind of like, okay, we're not really channeling what makes this character unique or an authority of any sense. Right. Yeah. If anything, you're kind of, you're neutering that character's almost like veteran status, if you will, amongst the squad, just because it's like nobody that is, and I never get in the weeds about stuff like this, but it's like nobody that is supposed to be a spec ops person in this group like this is going to be just like firing their gun off at birds <laughs> because they're going to make somebody else laugh. Like shit like that is just like it, it irks me because it is the antithesis of what that character would actually be doing. Exactly. And also that scene is in place of perhaps her having a scene that actually shows her as being somebody that is a, you know, a strong figure in this group or even just another interaction of her and another character to flesh out some semblance of a relationship. Um, but again, it comes down to the fact that they went too much in the opposite direction of what Anderson did, which is like, Hey, we're going to take every single big character in this franchise and put them in one fucking movie. And yeah. again, there's just far too much going on. Um, and, and I think that that even plays out like in a lot of the exposition early on. I don't know about you, man. The dialogue in this movie is some of the most, it, again, talking about Anderson making a film that is incredibly accessible and this film, it feels like it goes out of its way for the first 45 oh, minutes. Ham-fisted exposition dump narrative, like with Birkin right at the beginning. Yeah. He says, he's talking to Chris and Claire, his children. He goes, he's talking to them. And then he's like, hey, wait a minute. It's Redfield, isn't it? Oh. Chris and Claire Redfield? Like little scenes like that. It's just like, dude, you're fucking killing me with this. Like you're killing me with this kind of dialogue. I was like looking at my TV. I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to tell me these things. Oh, I was, it's so gross. It's so gross. Um, it's, it's wild to me because you would, you would kind of think, and maybe that's a larger conversation, but like, you know, with people and the, with people having played the games and the game's been out for like 20 plus years and the internet, you would think you don't have to do that much hand holding, but it doesn't, yeah. it, it doesn't trust, the writing doesn't trust the audience. And that very much bums me out because you can do like the brief text scene, like at the very beginning about, I think the brief text scene on the on-screen text scene about un Umbrella and the town itself. That's cool shit. Let me find out things from there. And, you know, I also think this movie's use of Easter eggs is a little, I don't know, a tad goofy. Like when I heard Jill say the Jill sandwich line, yeah, wow, you you really had to make sure that was fucking there, huh? You had to. Like, also, it's not used within the correct context of why she uses it in the first no. game. So it's like, if you're going to use that line, it has to have the proper context. Otherwise, it's like in uh, Doom Annihilation when he's like, um, "What the fuck does he say?" He's like, "I'm the Ultra Nightmare." Like nobody would no, say that. Yeah, no. So, like the Jill Sandwich thing doesn't make sense outside of that. Con it's just yeah. If I were there, I'd be like, the fuck are you talking about, dude? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. It yeah. just, it makes no sense and it's not presented in a way. Granted, again, I'm not going to take up this movie to task for having B-movie energy, but you got to meet me halfway here, right? It's like, you can't be like, oh, you're just going to throw lines out that people remember, but lack any reason why that line would be coming up at all. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't know. There's a, there's a, there's weird 
hand-holding and shoehorning in this. Um, yeah. You know, like, the one Easter egg that only comes to mind that I thought was kind of neat is the... Um, because it's funny, I was I thought it was very goofy how it was handled in Anderson's um, rendition of Resident Evil, but in Robert's, we actually get Ashford twins... And the name mm. Ashford in Anderson's movies, and well, in actually, and more so, uh, and I apologize, but whoever wrote and directed Apocalypse, um, you know, it's just the doctor and then his one kid who is modeled the model for the uh, Red Queen security system. Um, but like in this movie, we get a brief slideshow of like you know these two Ashford kids, and it's like, oh yeah, we you know if you if you know you know, but you know they they are big villains in um, Veronica. I, I, I believe so. Yeah. I forget, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that's so like that's an Easter egg I appreciate. But otherwise, I just found this. I found so much of the shit to be egregious. Um, <laughs> I also want to, and I don't know. So I'm really itching to talk about this, especially after you gave this part of the movie such a glowing opinion. Um, I don't know if it lands in between. I mean, granted, we just talked about casting. I don't know if it lands in casting or if it lands in Easter egg. Now, the big quality issue I have with the movie is the dialogue. But the big nerd gripe I have with this movie is Lisa Trevor. She does not work for me. She does not work for me. And she's one of my most favorite Resident Evil characters. <clears throat> and I and I think, and I, I'm really trying to be objective here, but I really think it's because of just how her character is handled in the games that she doesn't work for this movie um you know she is such a undercurrent quote unquote element of resident evil she is not this she's not necessarily this big important part to the story or to the game or to the lore she is really something that you have to dig out and find for yourself and if you take the time to find that backstory for her, she becomes horrifying and heartbreaking. And I think that's kind of the emphasis for her. She, I don't think alone she is this great big character because she's creepy looking. Resident Evil is full, of, is full of creepy monsters or characters. Yeah. What makes her so incredible is that story. And I, I think if you're just going to use her... And so... You have that emphasis in mind, right? So that's her, that's Lisa Trevor emphasis in the Resident Evil video game. Why are you going to take that character and use them as a plot element to just help our characters get from A to B? That seems incredibly wasteful for me. You could have made an original character. It you could yeah you could have just made an original character up to do that. Um. I actually, and just in my own personal opinion, I did, I because it's been a minute since I played the first game, but like I was looking at her design and I do think the whole, and it, it's supposed to be her parents' skin, I think that whole design does look cool, but I'm like, there's something that's rubbing me the wrong way. Why is it? I haven't played this, I haven't played the game in a minute. And when you go back to when I look at pictures of Lisa Trevor from like it was the game yeah, from the GameCube game, um, I actually think Roberts <laughs> makes her look too human. 
And that mm. also kind of ruins it for me because the original, the, the version, the original version of her is that parent flesh mask. Um, but he doesn't give us a clear textual understanding of her face outside of that because it's like sure. you get the one big eye and then you just see flesh. So it's like maybe she's been like burned or mutated in some sense. And maybe it's just because of how this prosthetic mask works in Welcome to Raccoon City. But like I could see too much of the actor behind it. I didn't think that it was a justified use or even a good use of the character. I thought that as far as, you know, the creature designs as a whole go, like if you were going to have it in the film, I thought that it, the design was okay, right? I didn't think necessarily like they justified the inclusion of it. Because like you said, the reasoning for why this character is in the film doesn't make sense for the context. And it, it you know, you keep coming back to this idea that this is just the probably the most overstuffed adaptation yeah. we've ever gotten, which is kind of strange considering, you know, Roberts has a successful career in horror specifically, right? And the fact that he's making a new Resident Evil reboot, that's a fresh start. So I don't understand the the hesitancy to not try to jam as many references into one film as pot. Like the fact that this was not the blueprint for two films is it's, it just blows my mind. The fact that they don't see that, well, you're overstuffing this thing to the degree that the parts that are actually pretty well done could be that much better when they work in cohesion with the rest of what you're making. Because again, there's just too much going on and, you know, having, it feels like the worst example of, Easter eggs because it's this thing where it's like, well, you can't have a single character in a single frame that you can't pick out of one of the games or that fans won't be like, it has that kind of DNA all over it in a way that I'm just like, even on a rewatch, like if anything, again, I still enjoy this movie a lot yes. for what it is. But at the end of the day, like you can't not separate those things from it because it's just like, again, as just as the movie, as the scene finds its stride, it feels like it, kind of like changes tracks to another one that then again, it just derails the kind of pacing of everything. I do want to, I do want to make sure I emphasize that point that you just said too. like, for as much as I have issues, you know, it, you know, part of good criticism is liking something or, you know, caring about something and you should be critical of it. You know, um, we're warranted. I also, I still like this movie a lot. Oh yeah. Like what it does well it does fucking well. Yeah, man, absolutely. And, you know, I think that for some of the things that this is, you know, it's funny talking about how overstuffed this is, there's two notable things that are missing from this, right? Which is there's no tyrant and there's no Mr. X, right? At the same time, though, I think Roberts does a good job at capitalizing on the creatures that are at his disposal here. I think that, you know, the most notable moment for me in terms of taking it back to the zombies for a minute is that um, itchy, tasty moment, which yeah. I love because it's able to take this idea of how the virus is spreading in Raccoon City, applying a little bit of an Easter egg, and then having what is like genuinely a pretty terrifying moment when you get like, oh, creepy fucking kid. And then you have this chick run through the throw herself through a plate glass window and then just like claw at her face and shred her face, which is fucking gnarly every time I see oh, it. Oh, brutal. Yeah, I actually, I, 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 so there's, there is that scene, which is obviously very forwardly graphic. 
But I was so thrown off the first and the second time we get that moment with the kid crawling under the table. Because again, it, it, it's the camera positioning of it because where our eyes are on the door and you know Claire is lined up with the door. And so it doesn't get this thing where, you know, we get a tease of like just panning down a little and we see this body crawling underneath. It's barely in the shot. We get the top of the child's head as it crawls under and it also happens. And so like, we, we we have only seconds to try and register of like, wait, what? And then is this the threat? And then we don't know. And I and that's just something I love. Like this, like I I, I do think the action scenes for the great most part in this movie are great. I think they're fantastic. Um, but I also love a lot of the more restrained moments. Well, I mean, to build off of that, talking about restrained parts, like I don't think the liquor is particularly good in this movie. But the scene when Leon notices that there's something coming towards them and you don't even see the liquor in it, but you just see down the hallway, the lights swaying as the liquor jumps from on top of the lights and it's shrouded in darkness. That is fucking terrifying. And again, it shows Roberts has a really great sense of framing with, you know, the 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 horror element. Right. He even does it in uh, his 47 meter down films before you see the shark. You have these in, these inclinations that something is there just out of eyesight. And, you know, he does a great job in this film a couple of times with something like that, as you mentioned. And, yeah, it's just, I don't know. You wish that he had more time in the film, narratively speaking, but also that he could have a little more restraint more often, I think. Like you mentioned earlier, that scene when Claire looks out into the woods and she just sees the woman standing there. Like, that's a... Pretty, that scene actually reminds me of uh, that scene from the beginning of uh, Dario Argento's uh, Suspiria, right? Yeah. When she's in the cab and she looks out the window and she sees a woman just running through the woods. Like, it took me back to that. Like, that's a really perfectly framed shot for that. Granted, it doesn't make a lot of sense. The zombies just like walking away instead of attacking people. But still, like, when you get that moment, I'm not going to be like super picky about it. Take it. I, yeah, I, there's so much good working for this movie that, like, if there's another, I would be fine and happy to hear that he's taken it. But, like, just give him more time. Well, that's the thing, right? I think that, and it's difficult to know, right? Because I guess I had this in my notes, but obviously the movie was released during COVID, right? Which is going to impact the box office numbers and whatnot. Um, But this movie still, this movie made $45 million against a budget of 25. Like that is not, I guess in the grand scheme of things for like a big budget IP, that's probably not viewed as a success. It's also not an outright bomb, right? So I don't know that we can necessarily immediately rule him out as returning, but at the same time, like no matter if he returns or not, it's the type of thing where it's like, man, I just wish he'd been able to have the time to develop this the way that he probably would have wanted to develop it. Can Conf- like you're not doing yourself any f- favors by conflating the two biggest entries in the series, arguably, into one singular film that is less than two hours long. No, yeah, I mean it's it, I, I it's one of those swing for the fences that I will applaud. Is it done perfectly? Sure. No. No, but like, you know what? I think that's cool that he was willing to take on that angle because I also think that's kind of like a very cool move rather than your typical Hollywood convention of like, okay, so the first one's going to be one and then the second's going to be two. It's like, no, fuck it. Let's mash them up. 
And I think it's like, I think it's a cool thing that I'd be happy to see try again. Um, but it just needs to be really tuned. And it, part of that is making a longer movie. Um, and then there's also essential elements from like one or two being like the lack of a tyrant and the lack of a Mr. X, which I think it's prop. that's probably actually a good segue to talk about Birkin. Uh, because until I loathe the CGI representation of his monster in the train, again, another fucking bullshit trains. <laughs> um, I actually, on my second watch of this movie, really found his humanoid transformation gross. Um, particularly the animated um, visuals of his neck tendons. I found that shit to be very gross. I'm like, ooh. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm glad I got that little reaction out of that. But then, yeah, um, this movie, what did you think of, I mean, I think it's fair to say in general, Burke, compared to like what Birkin's like in 2, horribly mm-hmm. undercut villain. Um, again, yeah. another thing where it's like, you're serviceable for all your talking point exposition bullshit, sure. But like when I think about like Birkin, like tracking down like, you know, Claire, and being a presence and not like a Mr. X presence, but being like that kind of boss character. It's like, it's a shame that you like the liquor scene, um, like the liquor ending in O2 Resident Evil. You have just brutally shoot in what should be like a great big set piece. Um, and unfortunately, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'd be welcome to Raccoon City ends on like a pretty poor ass note. But like, yeah. Um, there's so there was so much promise for me with that character and him being a monster. What about you? Yeah, you know, again, talking about overstuffed, you're gonna take the central villain of the second game and reduce him down to three scenes, I think, in the entire movie. And one of them is almost of completely no consequence. Right? It's him f- telling his family, like, oh, they're gonna steal my life work. We have to go down to the la-, like that scene. And yeah, you know, I guess I like the first transformation of him, right? You get to start seeing the eyes popping out of his shoulder and everything. And he starts over time, like he's got this just muscle jettisoning out of the rest of his body, which is gr- creepy and gross. But he's just a, he's just a monster devoid of, you know, the the heartbreak, I think, at the heart of <laughs> that character, right? It's devoid of all of that. And it just becomes this like CGI mess for me kind of by the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, also, you know, how important his family is to the Resi story, Resi 2 story is completely non-existent um, to the degree that, again, it's like, I rather wish that they had spent time with those characters almost more than some of the members of Stars, given how little those members of Stars or even, you know, Leon, for that oh. uh, matter, um, don't really add anything to the film at all or anything of worth, right? It's just... Again, it's trying to do far too much that you actually end up undercutting the more interesting aspects of the story that's being told because of the name brand recognition of the protagonist of Resident Evil 1 and 2, right? So that is – and I always hate these cases where doing a villain a disservice to try to service a protagonist, but you have to view villains in most cases or good villains at that point um, as – just as important, if not more important, than some of the antagonists. Like, Leon Kennedy is a great protagonist for Resident Evil 2 because he's the new guy, so we're going to be able to relate to him the most, and then he has the capacity to become great. 
I would say that Birkin is and his family are far more interesting to the plot of Resident Evil 2 than Leon is. Like, Leon makes for a great avatar to play as, but, like, he's not really interesting as a character. He's got his little quips now and then, but, like, when I go back, especially the last time I went back and replayed Resident Evil 2, like, Birkin, his family, getting to play as his daughter in that section in the remake is, like, all fantastic. And the fact that none of that is highlighted, really, or at all, I would say, um, other than, you know, Again, Birkin showing up in the last 10 minutes of the movie and then, you know, all of a sudden his relationship with Chris becomes very important. But again, it's far too little too late uh, to have any kind of like real impact on anything. I okay, so if I had to think about one scene in this movie that drives me mad, because again, I, I, I my big issue is the dialogue and there's a lot of scenes I love and enjoy. But if I had to think about the one scene that drives me fucking mad, it is the actual. So it's the Birkin while he's trans, like while he's in that humanoid transform transform state, and he's taunting Chris. Yeah, I that it's such a weird thing for me because I don't know about you, but for me, it straddles this weird line of like this film has done so much hand holding and making sure we're aware of things like. Chris's relationship to Umbrella, so like now we know that's a parent, and like look at how much of a goody two shoes bullshit cop he is, whatever the fuck, and but then that's kind of just dropped for a while. It's gone. We don't address that shit. We go on with the rest of the movie, and then Birkin needs to make sure that we, the audience, fucking know about how lonely Chris doesn't have, and like, lonely Chris doesn't have a daddy, and he's like, you thought you were part of the family. It's like, oh, <laughs> we haven't revisited this in like an hour and 30. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're wasting my time. Yeah, it, it swoops in as a justification for a scene that is not visually interesting outside of the fact that he has a couple of new appendages and a couple of new eyes. Like, that whole relationship and also like, you know, Claire's drive in the game and, you know, ostensibly in the film as well is that she's been wanting to reconnect with her brother. Right. Yes. And that is so not a focal point of this movie other than it being a very thin plot device for her to return. Exactly. And the fact that they can just like present that as if that's the basis for this film and then uh, abandon it for an hour and then come back to it. And it's like, at the very end, it's like, Oh, you know, it's all about family at the end. It's like, no, you can't just like cherry pick the importance of relationships between characters and then expect the end to have some kind of emotional payoff. And then you have a bullshit, massive CGI, uh, Birkin, which looks awful. Leon fires a missile launcher and then you get the credits and the movie's over. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's very it's it's that complaint that I was concerned about with O2 Resident Evil actually happening. Yes. It's that is the perfect way to put it, right? It is the worst case scenario for ending Resident Evil 2002. And we got that ending basically. But but again, what it does right is so perfect. It's and I would say more interesting than anything that was done in this is my opinion again of the last ten years of any of those Anderson Resident Evil movies. It's the most visually engaging. It's the thing that is the most close to the 
tone and the feeling of the games, which yes. we're talking about adaptation after all, like that's a major W yeah. right there. Um, but I think it's worth bringing up. So, you know, you know, we did a little bit of shit talking. What are these scenes or maybe for you, the scene that stands out? Yeah. You know, again, for me, it's got to be that Chris in the Spencer mansion scene. Yeah. Um, that scene again, is such a fantastic encapsulation of what it feels like to play a survival horror game. Um, and also, again, just the way that it's lit, the way in which it's able to grapple with the reality of that character's situation, the fact that, you know, it's getting the hesitancy and the urgency of trying to clear a room while you have limited resources, the way that it's lit, again, is absolutely fantastic. Um, and I would also say that... The probably one of my favorite moments is the needle drop scene when you have that big tanker crash at the RPD station yeah. and you just have this zombified, emulsified corpse just walking slowly through and then just falls and Leon is completely oblivious to it. Um, that was actually pretty hilarious and very much in line with the uh, the B-movie nature of Resident Evil. That is actually so I, I, the thing that is the fa my favorite element of Welcome to Raccoon City is its whole presentation and vibe and dedication to the feel of survival horror. So when it comes to that, I, I, I don't mean to be like, you know, there's not a lot of scenes that stand out to me um, because it's really like I'm just sold on that vibe. Um, so honestly, my favorite scene, quote unquote, of this movie is the, you know, burning corpse scene. And the, <laughs> I, I, I just, I was not expecting that at all when it happened. And honestly, I laughed so fucking hard. Yeah. And I, I, I wasn't expecting to do that during a Resident Evil movie, but it worked for me. So yeah, that is absolutely my standout scene as well. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in terms of like not having necessarily a favorite scene, I suppose I would say that the set design I think is perfect in this movie, whether it's Raccoon City, whether it's the police station, whether it's, you know, Spencer Mansion specifically, it is in, you know, they, I guess, suppose Capcom needs credit because Capcom gave them sort of like the blueprints or concept art for those games so that they could bring it to life for the film. Um, and I think that that dedication to being incredibly authentic to the look of those specific locales and worlds within Resi is perfect, I think. 100% agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's funny that, you know, for a film that uh, we have some pretty substantial gripes with still, like, I, I would have no qualms about recommending this to somebody that's interested in Resident Evil or interested in video game adaptations of film, um, because I think that, again, for me, I'm a big, like, tone guy. And the fact that after all of these, you know, two decades of Resident Evil films, finally getting one that feels the closest to the source material um, was very exciting, especially as a reboot, right? Again, exactly. talk about taking a swing and big swings don't always pay off, but at the same time, it shows that there's the potential for capitalizing on something that a portion of the fan base, I think, has always wanted. Um, and, you know, the entire fan base to a certain degree, right? Whether you want more of an action nature or more of a horror nature, I think, who can argue with the fact that you want something that looks more like Resident Evil, the game? caters to the whole presentation. I have two ideas I want to throw by you. Yep. So as as we're wrapping up, so I I we can we could just do quick um shotgun versions of this. So if I'm forcing you into a corner for a movie night and you can only pick one, which one is it between these two? 
I think I would do Anderson's film just because it is the most accessible and I don't have to worry about whether or not somebody has played the games before or has any affinity for video games, to be quite honest. Because I think that Anderson's film is an easier sell for so many of the reasons that we talked about. Um, the fact that you can go into it, whether or not you're a fan of games, first and foremost, I would say whether or not you're even a fan of um, horror in general, right? You know, like I, I remember I showed Anderson's 2002 film to like an old girlfriend that didn't care about horror and didn't like horror and still was like able to approach that film to the degree that I think casual film viewers can with horror movies. You know what I mean? Like it has vibes that are very approachable. Uh, and I'm not going to say like she loved it or anything like that, but it was the type of thing that I could at least broach that film with her. Um, and she was like game for it because it's like, oh yeah, it's like a zombie movie or whatever, this or that. And it's the type of thing where at the end of the day, there you know, also it helped that it had a, a badass female lead in it, but it's not so heavily leaning into horror that people that don't necessarily jive with horror are turned off. But there's enough there that, you know, playing around with action and horror that uh, I wouldn't be as worried about people like tuning out or checking out after, you know, 30 minutes or something like that, where if I was to show somebody Welcome to Raccoon City, that's a film that I think it requires more buy-in because of how faithful it is. And, you know, that's the one thing where it's like it, it becomes perhaps part of a detractor because, granted, I've played all I've played the game, so I'm well aware of the source material. I could not imagine being invested in this story from this film solely. This is the thing that should maybe have been my massive caveat with this. I really don't know if you can enjoy Welcome to Raccoon City if you are not familiar with the games. That's a Whereas I don't have that caveat with Anderson's film, which if we're going to, you know, brass tacks with ad adaptations, Anderson's is more of a widely approachable adaptation, whereas Welcome to Raccoon City is more of a niche genre adaptation and how accurate it is. I'm 100% with you, yeah. I think there's a part of me as a fan. So it's like, without repeating everything you've said, you know, if I were put into a corner and I had to pick one for a movie night, it would definitely be O2 Resident Evil. But there's there would also be a part of me really itching out of my own personal fandom and out of what I personally enjoy. There would be a part of me that would want to like really play Welcome to Raccoon City. But there is way I think there would be way too much like I think about my own friend group right now. And there would be way too much alienation. And I think you said it perfectly. That would that that's a great point about how this movie might actually welcome city, you know, Raccoon City. It might be a tough sell because of how much it relies on you knowing. Um, there's like, it's, it's wild because a lot of the characters lack their depth. Um, yeah, but you don't know why they're special. <laughs> yeah, and, like, and it's just, they lack their depth as far as the presentation of the film. And if you come in and you don't know anything it's just like why am i supposed to give a shit about claire and chris you know so no i i, I absolutely agree with like again those not in any neg negative way of saying this um but generic good qualities about anderson's resident evil i think that if somebody enjoyed anderson's 2002 film i would immediately show them welcome to raccoon city that's because the they at least are 
becoming more familiar perhaps with the parameters and the context of the world that they can understand perhaps how welcome to raccoon city i guess just like tuning their mind in more to this world of zombies and uh conglomerate companies and things like that and sort of the the uh, conspiracy aspect behind everything um i personally i would go from this film to welcome to raccoon city um before I show them any of the other sequels. I like Resident Evil Extinction well enough, but um, I think that this one at least gives them a taste of both, right? And this, and the 2002 film is the way for them to dip their water, their toes in the water um, without uh, alienating anybody, perhaps. And then last question. This is like just total whatever, shotgun answer if you want. But for you, what is your favorite, obviously non-game, uh, adaptation of Resident Evil? Uh, my favorite is going to be, I think... Anything, by the way. It doesn't have to be these Anderson movies or Welcome to Raccoon City. Yeah, I think it might... It's funny. It might be Welcome to Raccoon City just because, again, like all of those elements that I've stressed are where the film succeeds are exactly what I want from a Resident Evil film. I think I would rather take... Be, yeah, now that I'm saying it though, because <laughs> bits and pieces of Welcome to Raccoon City I really like, but as a whole film, it lacks the cohesion of Anderson's film, which does not always meet the mark tonally for me, what I would want. Mm. But that film is front to back entertaining. So I am going Resident Evil 2002, Paul Anderson's film. Interesting, interesting. Um, maybe a little bit of a hot take on my end. Um, because again, you know, we've been talking for a couple hours now about how much love. <laughs> it might be the long, the second longest episode of Daily Horror. Habit. So, but you know, it's it's to the testament that we talked about two very interesting films, two very, frankly, even though they both have their issues, in depth films that has that have a lot to criticize and a lot to praise. Um, so, for as much as I love O2 Resident Evil, and as much as I love Roberts Welcome to Raccoon City. I I think it comes from those movies. Um the very drastic in quality CGI movies, the very iffy uh CGI Netflix show, and what I've been experiencing lately in recent years, having played two remake seven and eight. Um <clears throat> I think my favorite adaptation is actually the tragically canceled live action Netflix show. Um, that thing blew me the fuck away. I was so angry when I got when I that news came out that it was canceled. I I think that thing was so fucking interesting. I'm happy to let you have your opinion on the matter. <laughs> I um yeah, do you disagree? I don't need I don't need to get into it. It's just that it it was not for me and I will I will leave it at that. Okay. But I am ha- I'm happy that they made a 8 to 10 episode series that took the series in a new direction and it worked for somebody. I think that that is the beauty of adaptations and whatnot in that they can take these massive swings and deliver something that is very off script and yet at the same time it resonates with people. I think that's totally. the beauty of them and even if it wasn't for me, yeah, I was bummed to see that it got canceled because it's like there was... A, an audience for that. And I want those people to continue to see the type of content that speaks to them. You know, the short version 
Well, one, Lance Reddick, one of my favorite actors working today. Awesome. Um, but the short version for me is, you know, I, I at the very beginning, two hours ago, I talked about Resident Evil for me is that hashtag fucking fun. And part of it is the monsters and it's it's the monsters and the thrill of this story. And I don't mean this in any negative way, but for as much as the really the only character I have a deep, the only human character I have a deep sentimental attachment to is Leon. And that's because of how profound Resident Evil 4 was in my life and playing that game. Like, again, top three video game experiences for me. Um, and so that's that's really the only human character I have any sort of connection with. When it comes to everyone else, it's like, yeah, I enjoy that adventure playing as Jill. And I enjoy that adventure playing as Chris and so on and so forth. And Wesker's cool when he does like a super powered thing, whatever have you. Um, this was, you know, not to the depth of Silent Hill, but to the comment I made earlier, this is the first time I experienced a Resident Evil thing that felt like it had heart. And that's something I did not expect at all. And yeah, I get if it didn't work for some folks, totally respect that. For me, it was an angle that I'd never seen with the property. And that's what worked for me. Yeah, I mean, I could see that it certainly feels like it built off the vibes of Anderson's sequels, right? How those got bigger and bigger and bigger. And to hear that it resonated with you in a way that was similar, but it even took the characterization of those individuals to a degree that maybe even surpassed those films. Again, that speaks to the idea of like why I, you know, I'm not going to say every adaptation's for me, clearly, but it's the type of thing that I'm never opposed to adaptations, no matter the direction they take, because there's the potential there. And, you know, just because something on paper sounds like it might not be for me in practice, maybe it would work for me. Um, so that, yeah, that's the type of thing where it's like, you always hate to see projects get canceled when they're trying something new, um, considering the amount of leeway projects that come out that are just doing more of what we've seen. And yet they get the green light because they're safe. Um, whereas something that takes a risk, it always feels like it's uh, cut short, perhaps. It's a shame. But yeah. But no, I, I was very curious. Um, this has been fantastic. I've been itching to talk about these two movies, I think, the most out of this series that we've been doing. For sure, man. Yeah. I, it's always great uh, getting to chat, you know, merge my two loves, film and games. Um, and to have somebody as passionate as you on to come and chat again is always a, a pleasure, man. I look forward to continuing these chats because they are uh, they're not only a lot of fun, but also, you know, I get to return to media that I haven't in a while. And that was definitely the case with Resident Evil. And I'm sure it'll be the case for whatever we uh, decide to chat about next, which we will uh, we'll do. We'll put our heads together and plan out and we'll uh, figure that out for some time in the near future. For sure, I got a few ideas for sure. But um, <laughs> well, thank you again, man. As always, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jay. It was wonderful. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at Not Funny Jay. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.